Hello, everybody. It's Keith. Help support the Northeast scene and declare yourself a member today. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast medium of choice. Rate us and leave a review. Every little bit helps. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. It has every podcast episode plus other exclusive content. Like and leave a comment. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TheNEScene. Also, continue to write us at NortheastScene at gmail.com. We want to share your experiences as well. And now, here's the show. Three, two, hello. <clears throat> no, that's no good. That's off pitch, Tommy. That's off pitch. Was it? <clears throat> yeah. Ready? There's a certain pitch I got to hit. All right. Let's see if I can get it. Ready? Three, two. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Northeast Scene Podcast. This is Keith. And Tommy. And we're back on a Monday night. And folks, tonight's guest is none other than Stacy Hilt of the Casket Lottery and Coalesque. Founding member, person behind some of their most classic songs. It's going to be incredible. Anyone from Coalesque can instantly come on this show. Anyone. It's the only hardcore shirt I still own. Really? It's the only one. I got rid of everything. I, I either gave it away or did it on like that Facebook merch swap thing. But I, I got rid of everything. But the coalesce uh, functioning on impatience gray tee that I have with like the rib cage, I, I can't. I'm never going to get rid of that. Yeah, never do. I, I still have an extensive collection in 2018 to like, I don't know, late 2019. I got into a real jag of buying band shirts. It was like an an obsession. I bought so many, and I would be furiously checking the mail to see if they came in and constantly searching for new ones, and it was was a whole thing. So I've got a nice collection. I still have the um, shirt you gave me, though. It's not hardcore, but I have the This Will Destroy You shirt. That's a good one. That is a good one. I wore that for two weeks straight recently. how that's so funny is like I, we were texting the other day and keith was like i got out of the shower and i put the exact same clothes on that i had on all week <laughs> yeah i don't go anywhere i go out once maybe twice a week just to get food and stuff right yeah i go out sometimes i meet friends on thursday nights for a little bit i go out to go to the grocery store and sunday night i have a thing i do that's it that's yeah I I mean I don't go anywhere either. I'm not saying it like you know, but uh, I'm really I I think my thing is with shirts. I change my shirt every single day because I I get stuff on them. Like just having kids, oh you would die, dude. I get stuff on my shirts all the time. I have to confess something to you. Yeah. Remember how I told you I was thinking about buying a seven hundred dollar sweater? You bought it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wearing the same pants from Costco I've had for two years. (laughs) So we're like on a real opposite ends of the spectrum here. Yeah. No, this is like far right and far left. Like somewhere like (laughs) this is like a total clash of like in terms of like uh, especially like, you know what the thing is with fashion? Like 
I've never really gotten into it, but you know what? You said something to me one time and I, it kind of resonated and I was like, that's a good point. But you were like, I buy something I really like and I know is really well made. Yes. And, and then I wear it for a very long time. It's yes. kind of the same idea between behind like purchasing a guitar. It's like if you, you know, like you can buy like a crappy $150 like strat that's made in Mexico, like, and it, you know, it'll play, but it won't sound as great. Like that's the Costco pants, right? Yes. You can also buy like a American made Stratocaster, like, you know, with all the bells and whistles. And that is your $700 sweater. The thing is you will have that Stratocaster. You could pass it down to your kids. Exactly. I'm, I'm into retail therapy. I, I had a really tough week. This sweater caught my eye and I like to, I like to have a few high dollar items in my arsenal, you know? There you go. I, it's, it's not my whole wardrobe, but I've got some, I've got some nice pieces in it. Is it black? Oh yeah. Okay. It's just a black cotton sweater, but it's really nice. <laughs> it better be, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's really nice. I'm I'm very excited about it. And since I'm somewhat anonymous on here, I this is where I can admit to buying that, spending that much on a piece of clothing. But we're excited to be here tonight. We're going to be talking to Stacy from Colesk. I mean, that alone is exciting enough. And Tommy. Tommy asked me how I was doing before the show, and I just paused for a long time, and then I was like, that's a trick question. And he's like, what do you mean? So I was like, <laughs> like yeah. And uh, my mic volume was turned down really low, so we, we have to re-record part of this segment. It's a very stressful time. My new role at my new job started, and I'm just in the thick of it, handling things I've never handled before. You know, I was coasting for a little while before because I knew what to do and how to do it and who to talk to. And, of course, there was always challenges and things to overcome. But now I'm doing a lot of stuff that I haven't done before, and the stakes are much higher. And it's scary, but I'm doing my best. I'm getting things done. I just hope I come out on top through this whole thing and succeed. I think you'll be fine. You have that kind of ability to you adapt very quickly and you're you're a very quick learner, so I, I don't see any issues with this at all. I have faith in you. Well, I, I hope so. I mean you were talking earlier about the comparison with with teaching. You were t- what was the what were you teaching before math? So I taught reading and writing. Yeah. So and you had to transition to the math teacher and you had to take the really hard exam and you passed and you found out that you passed right before you went on vacation. Yep. Just it, like I found out I passed my test right before they switched it over and I would have to learn some new stuff that I didn't know and you know I I I think we're on similar tracks here and I hope I just hope that I succeed. I really do. I think my yeah, my comparison was like I I went into work that first like 3 months and every day I said to myself like did I make the wrong choice? Because there were times where kids would ask questions and I was unprepared. Like, hey, Mr. Doherty, can I flip this number and can it, will it give me the same answer? And I'd look at it and be like, I don't really know. <laughs> I don't know. Let's flip the numbers and see what happens. <laughs> like, um, But that same idea of your confidence, at least in, I think, both of our situations, our confidence doesn't come from immediate 
like action. We don't go like, hey, I got this, like walking into it. We no. build up confidence over time of I've had small successes. I've had medium successes. I've now kind of transitioned those into larger successes. That's when I f- start to feel a lot more confident about something rather than like, I know people that like come in to like, you know, just teaching in general and they're like, yeah, I got this. And then <laughs> after the so, first- do they end up being the worst teachers? No, but, um, that confidence gets knocked down pretty fast when they realize like a lot of, not a lot of it, but a a good chunk of teaching is kind of, uh, remember that old vaudeville act where people used to like spin a bunch of plates and like the whole thing was like one plate started to wobble and you got to go fix that plate. And the other plate starts to wobble. Like you have to keep them all spinning at the same time. You could be the most entertaining person in the world, but if you can't manage a classroom and keep behavior in check and give kids feedback and like, you know, conduct class in a way that's engaging, you have to do a bunch of those things simultaneously. Like if you're a really good teach, like I've seen people that are really funny and really engaging with the class, but that backfires on them because they can't control them. Like the kids will get out of hand one day or like kids will start, you know, going off at each other or they'll talk over top of them. And it's like you, you're engaging, but the kids don't give a shit because you don't have, you don't have their respect in terms of discipline. Like you can't like raise your voice and the kids go, Oh shit. Like he's talking, stop you stop talking now because otherwise there's going to be a consequence. So, um, no, you know what I noticed with teachers that come in that, do the worst. <laughs> if you came from a really good school, <laughs> that's the that's like the mark of like death with people. Yeah, because you you've never done any actual work in your entire life. Y- y- everything's been theoretical, and everything's been a grade in a class. Like you know, yes, um, no have, life experience. No, and it's we have a lot of like I actually currently have student teachers in from Princeton University in my class, and. Um, We've never had, we have this program with Princeton to help prepare their teachers, but we have never had a teacher that we've hired from Princeton last more than a few months. <laughs> yeah, I guess not in Trenton. Hey, you went in, you went into school today for the first time in like a year. Yeah, a year and a Give month. Give us a quick, give us a quick roundup of how that was. It was really cool. Um, I missed commuting. I uh, just drove into work like normal. I left my house at 20 after 6. I got to work, clocked in. Did you listen to the Zayo record on the way in or the way home? No. I did on the I, on the way home, I listened to it. I uh, On the way in, I'll be honest with you, my nerves got the best of me, and I needed yeah. I needed relaxing music. So I listened, I listened to Hammock. I have a Hammock mix that I play when I'm in, like, edgy. Yeah. Like, when I'm not. They're, they're the, the world's greatest musicians. Oh, it is. That's one of those. That's my, uh, that's. What does that get? That my that's my white whale for the show. I want the dudes. For, I want the guys from Hammock on. Me too. I'm gonna ask them probably soon. I'm just so afraid. No, you know what? I'm basically gonna like say that they just have to come on, like, and then I'm periodically just gonna keep asking if they don't want to do it, and <laughs> and not to be mad at me because I, I I I have to. Like it has to happen. They are a band that. They make music that makes me feel relaxed, whereas a lot of the music that we talk about on this show gives me energy and kind of centers me. But like Hammock is one of those things that's like 
meditative. Like it, it really, it brings me to a weird, not a weird place, but a very calm place. And especially if my emotions are like out of whack, like say if I had a really bad argument with my wife or I'm having trouble with a coworker or somebody that I have to like do observations on or some shit like that, listening to hammock will make me feel infinitely better. They're my go-to for that kind of thing too. But how good is that Zayo record? Dude. The, I can't believe, well, I can believe, but like the Crimson Corridor folks, check out this LP. Every single song is incredible. Those first like two or three songs, incredible. I mean, every song is good. I was I was completely blown away. And they should be really, really, really proud of this thing. Oh yeah, and it's it's if you like the Zayo, that's like that heavy chaotic Zayo. This is your record. Like this is it. Like because it is crazy heavy. Like there's sections that are very melodic and very well put together and smartly done, but there are parts of this record that are just absolutely brutal. Yeah, so you have brutal. lighter so- you have like some lighter kind of songs you yeah. you have some songs that just almost sound like Meshuggah, which is incredible yeah i and i'm a <laughs> i'm a sucker for that kind of like polyrhythm stuff like oh, as, me soon, too. as soon as yeah. i hear that i'm like yes got it yeah. um but yeah no work was really good uh it's essentially teaching from home but i do it by myself in my classroom uh it's kind of to get your brain in the the right mindset of you're coming to school every day uh, you know, getting your temperature check done. You have to fill out this whole survey about have you been in contact with anybody? Have you traveled to another state? You know, that kind of thing. It's like being reintegrated into society slowly after being in captivity for a long time. Yeah, no, that's a really good analogy. And it's, uh, it was, re- I mean, it was awesome today. Like I, ha- I was really nice to see, I have a couple of really like people I've been working with for, you know, almost a decade and I, I hadn't seen them for it to a year. It was a year and a month almost to the day. Um, that I've been home. So we really were excited to see each other. Um, none of the kids start back for a while. The kids don't start back for another two weeks. Um, but I'm excited to have kids in the classroom. Like that's, it was really nice just to get into my classroom and set it up. That's what I spent like the first, you know, 35, 45 minutes in my class today is just hanging things back up on the wall reorient you know putting my desk where i want it setting up my computer setting up all my monitors you know that kind of stuff getting markers ready for the whiteboard it was just really nice to kind of settle back into that routine um, will you cry when the kids come back no you know will what's gonna, oh yeah the kids are already really like i mean through the like just talking to them today they were like you're back in the school and i'm like yeah and they're like lucky and i'm like i know lucky they miss it so much. Like, you know, my niece and nephew were playing school. Yeah. Like, that's how grim it is. Kids are playing school because they don't go to school anymore. Yeah. Well, my, my daughters have always played school. Or maybe that was your kids you told me about. I don't know. Some kids that I know were playing school, which is, just seems insane to me. Yeah, they love it. Well, they, they take turns being the teacher and giving orders. So it's not really about school it's about it's a being, power dynamic oh yeah it's about being in charge yeah there's lots of de- my my house there's lots of detentions given out that's what school is really about well hopefully that doesn't transfer over to real school but <laughs> look we're out of time so now we're going to talk to stacy hilt enjoy all right folks we're here now with stacy hilt stacy welcome to the show hey glad to be here guys yes i'm so glad that you reached out And as I was saying to Tommy in segment one, any member of Coalesce may instantly come on the show because Coalesce to me is like Van Halen or 
Led Zeppelin. It's just at the peak of the peak of uh, the metalcore bands that I grew up loving and still love. Oh, you are way too kind to be be uh, clumped into that kind of royalty and rock, I guess. <laughs> no, it, Stacey, I got rid of, not got rid of, but I gave, either gifted or sold all of my old hardcore shirts. The only one I did not part with is my functioning on impatience shirt. That's a rad shirt too. Isn't it? Dude, and that's yeah. one of the ones that like, you know, a lot of stuff I had was like, you know, disembodied and, and had lots of pentagrams and shit on it. I'm like, I'm a math teacher. Like I'm a, like I teach middle school. So I was like, I really can't wear this anymore pretty much. So I was like, you know what? This one is just like just the plain gray shirt with like the rib cage design. And on the yep. back kind of like hip part, it says coalesce real small. And I was like, I'm keeping this forever. <laughs> yeah, Sean started screen printing those through uh, Blue Collar back when it was still called the Bear Press. And he, and he always used that military gray for a lot of his designs. Military gray and drab olive. I don't know if those are super cheap to get or what, but he, <laughs> he liked those two colors a lot. <laughs> I won't wear anything unless it's black. I like I can't wear any other color shirt or sweater or anything now. It's just strictly black. So if the band t-shirt's not in black, can't wear it. Sorry. Well, I'll tell Sean to quit fucking around with that that green and the, the gray. <laughs> <laughs> Stacy, let's uh let's take it back a bit. Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Kansas City. On I'm actually on the Kansas side. I'm a recent Missouri relocator, but I used to be on the Kansas side for most of my life. We, we had a son and the school districts are way better in the Kansas City, Missouri side of things. So we moved where the school districts were. How many kids do you have? I just have one. We started real late. I didn't have my son until I was 37. How old are you now? Uh, 45. I just turned 45 a few weeks ago. Uh, see, I'm always amazed. Like when I was younger, I felt so much younger than everybody in the, in a lot of ways. And of course, in age too. But most of the people and bands that we talk to, the bands that I just absolutely love. They're only like, I don't know, four or five years older than me. I figured they were like 10 years older than me. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a proper, proper misconception, I guess. We, we just seem old. We've been around long enough that we have to be old. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I started Coalesce in high school at 17. At, le- at least the early form of what would eventually become Coalesce. I was part of all the early days from the krishna core stuff to the straight up hardcore stuff and then when we moved into the coalesce era so tell us a little bit about your history like what was it like where you grew up and tell us your musical trajectory what you were into and how you discovered all the punk rock type stuff well i mean early on i I lived in just a middle class neighborhood in a small suburb of overland park which Mm -hmm. is on the kansas side of the state line my grandpa was a Native American that relocated here from Arizona after leaving a reservation, and he started a construction business in Kansas City, and pretty much that's where our roots came from. And then music-wise, I'd always kind of had an interest in music. My uncle got me into metal when I was a kid, like I was probably seven or eight years old, and he let me hear Judas Priest and Ozzy Osbourne for the first time. Nice. And the record cover scared the crap out of me. <laughs> But the music just, it blew me away. And I bet, you know, as a kid, you always kind of migrate towards Kiss as well because of the comic book persona and the, the whole yeah. stage presence. I was way into cartoons and comic books as a kid. So it was, it was a natural trajectory for me to kind of migrate towards them. But funnily enough, I was listening to like Daryl Hall and John Oates a lot too as a kid. <laughs> I think my first record was uh, Maneater. Uh, that was oh. the first record I actually ever bought at a record store. 
Hall um, and Oates are good. As a Philadelphia former Philadelphia resident, you it's just ingrained in you. Oh yeah, yeah, they're, they're fantastic. They both went to uh, Temple, and the uh, one place that I used to have to take a lot of classes um, was Annenberg Hall. And when you walk in, there is a plaque to uh, Hall and Oates in there because they are both <laughs> alumni of Temple University. That's amazing. I always used to go in there and be like holy shit, like those dudes went to school here and you forget like, you know, cause yeah. like I, and they're one of those bands that their music just comes up so randomly. I hadn't heard their song. I hadn't heard it like a hollow note song in forever. And one of my friends was, it sent me a clip from step brothers and I was like, Oh that shit. Funny. That's so funny. I was like, that's that hollow notes clip when they start, you know, doing karate out in the garage. Yeah, yeah. Like, I was like, God damn, that's such a funny part. And the music pairs so well with it. It's oh, yeah. awesome. That movie's amazing. Oh my God. Yeah. We, we, we cracked up about that all the time. And I used to always threaten to like put my nuts on our drummer's kid all the time and stuff like that. <laughs> all the time. Oh yeah. The whole don't touch my yeah, drum, don't touch my drum set. <laughs> you know what though? That was like one of those films that, um, I hadn't seen a really good R-rated comedy in a very long time. Like, cause I was, I was a big fan of like, uh, I liked trading places with Eddie Murphy and Dan oh, Aykroyd. And Aykroyd. And, yep. Yeah. And, and, you know, Caddyshack and the, those types of like, um, slap shot. Yeah. Light, lighthearted yeah. kind of not vicious comedy. No, yeah. Exactly. And you know, one of the things that like that movie brought back for me was like, there's some of that, type of like really funny just over the top humor in stuff that like it's an accessible movie like you watch that and go like this is just funny like i don't give a shit like if i'm like you don't have to be like a a comedy snob but like if you sit down and watch that movie it's really funny you're growing up in uh, kansas city you're discovering metal was bass your first instrument no guitar was my first instrument i i was on a high school and uh, a friend of mine was on the bus with me, and he had a video cassette of Cliff Amal. Oh, um, yeah. And I was just like, who in the hell is Metallica? <laughs> and then he let me borrow the video, and I watched it, and it was like one of the scariest videos I've ever watched, just because the, the production on it was like super grainy video camera from like a VHS and all this stuff, and it was like really scary for me, but I was really excited by the music. And that's when I discovered metal at an age that i could understand what it was and then it made me want to play so um i wanted to play drums but my dad absolutely refused he said it was way too loud yeah so uh i decided well i'll play guitar then and two days later i had a guitar in my bedroom like it it was that quick there's no to drums and then as soon as i wanted to play guitar there it was how did you get it did your parents just buy it for you yeah they bought it for me my dad is a guitar player and a singer in a band when he was uh my age at that time which was 16 17 yeah, um, he played in a band until he was about twenty, and then they had me, and then he went to work. And I'd have my dad sit down and show me old Jim Croce songs, and he would like learn Danzig songs for me on the guitar and teach me how to play Danzig songs. It's pretty. It's pretty funny. I love that. I love the involvement there because my parents were always so busy at work. I just had to kind of figure shit out by myself. Well, it inspired him too at that time because he was in his late thirties, early forties around that time. And he went out and bought an acoustic guitar so that we could play together. And then he started buying music books and learning how to play songs that I was interested in. So he could teach me how to play them. Um, yeah. And then anything I wanted pretty much, he took me to see my first concert, which was Pearl jam. Uh, it was a free concert at a college here in Kansas city, right before 10 really broke. 
and I had heard a couple songs off the record, and he took me to see that, and that was my first real concert. How was that? It was amazing. And they were some of the nicest guys I've ever met. And I was 16 at the time, and they kept trying to convince my dad that he needed to go to the bar with them so that I could go hang out with them more. <laughs> and it was pretty hilarious. And, and it's like, but looking back, it's like they were raging alcoholics. It's oh, wow. Like, it's like we were going to totally help feed their, their, uh, their addiction. But yeah, it was pretty funny. It was a lot of fun. That's amazing. Yeah, because that first concert experience is something you never forget. For me, it was also 16 years old. It was the first Family Values Tour. This was the heyday. This was like right before new metal really popped off into the mainstream. So the tour was a uh, Corn, Limp Biscuit, Ice Cube, Orgy, and Rammstein. I think. What was it? So was it was it Ice Cube or was it Body Count? No, I think it was Ice Cube. It was Ice Cube. Okay. Oh, shit. Yeah. If I if I remember correctly, I forgot about Orgy. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They, they had a goof. They all had goofy haircuts, right? Like they had like the like the uh, kind of like cornrows style hair, but like kind of like hung down, like and cut off into sections, right? Yeah, it, it was weird. I remember that. It was like semi goth, semi Jamaican with cornrows, goth cornrows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was odd, but I loved it. I mean, it was it was a huge show. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget it. I don't listen to most of those bands most of the time anymore, but the memories remain. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, my second real concert I ever went to was Pantera and White Zombie. Oh, man. And that was at the outhouse in Lawrence, Kansas, in a building that was no bigger than like a two bedroom house. <laughs> and and like Pantera fans were hanging from the rafters, like swinging from the ceiling of this place. And like the moshing was just people just punching the crap out of one another. And no one knew who Rob Zombie was. He was just this guy that was dressed in like hippie clothes with dreadlocks talking about zombies and Frankenstein and stuff. And no one knew who the hell that guy was either. But it was an awesome <laughs> show. Yeah, my friend used to tell stories about Pantera shows and they always sounded terrifying. Oh, they were. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know what? I've always met, like, anytime I, I don't remember who it was, but like, I, every time I meet someone that's like a huge Pantera fan, like, and they're still a huge Pantera fan, uh, it seems to kind of go hand in hand with like, they've had, uh, a, they usually have some very hard life. Like, they have a hard job. Um, they came from a family that was harsh or, you know, like broken. And it's always like Pantera seems to attract. And, and I'm one of those people like, uh, you know, Pantera attracts people that are disaffected and very angry. And Pantera fills that void of when I first heard Far Beyond, I'd first Far Beyond Driven was the first thing that I had heard. And I remember hearing it going. I've never heard music like this before, but I need to hear more of this. Like, yeah. And, and that was a, a great, great record. Cowboys from hell was the first record I ever heard from them. And I bought it at a little swap and shop just randomly. Cause I never seen a picture disc on a, on a CD before. And I was like, what the hell is Pantera? And I looked at it and had this metal looking dudes on the cover, jumping off like bars and stuff like that. And then yeah. the inside had a picture disc. And I was like, I got to hear what this sounds like. It's got a picture on the CD. So I bought it and it was life changing. What was the one with the rattlesnake on it? Great Southern Trend, trend Kill. Yeah, trend yes, kill. that's the one that I really dug. How do you get involved with starting bands of your own? And what kind of bands were they? Well, I, I was a huge Alice in Chains fan. Yes. And 
I pretty much started learning Alice in Chains books. Like I bought the books, the tablature books, and learned them like front to back. Wow. And then a friend of mine, his his uncle, who was twenty four or twenty five, I think at the time, his name was Dan. He played drums in some like hair metal bands back in the eighties, and somehow I convinced him to play in this stupid Alice in Chains cover band with me. <laughs> so I forced him to learn like every Alice in Chains cover, and then when I finally got into Pantera and stuff like that, I made him learn the Pantera songs, and then I would basically <laughs> lord over him and tell him. You're not playing it right. Did you hear that that snare hit that Vinny did? You didn't do that snare hit. I would just like totally dictate what he played all the time. Um, and then eventually, when I started doing my own thing, I started I, I got a job really playing in a band called Gravedigger in this mm-hmm. small little city in Kansas City, Kansas called Bonner Springs. The kids' parents are like pretty well off. They were in the they were poli- they were politicians. And they pretty much ran like this little town and did this festival. So we always had festivals to play. Oh, and we wild. would do stuff like on floats. They had like a float building business and all this stuff. And eventually I had to tell them, you can't do that because they wanted to do this whole float style stage with a graveyard in the back and a gallow and all this weird stuff. And I was like, if you do that, I'm out. I, I, can't, I can't do that. <laughs> but I, I, want, I want jeans, shorts, and like big baggy shirts and I want to do helmet and Alice in Chains and stuff like that. I don't want to do. Yeah. Stacy, what's your favorite Alice in Chains song? <sighs> That's a tough one. I'm always a big fan of We Die Young. That first song off of Facelift. Yep. I love that one. It just makes such a great impression right out of the gate. Yeah. And and that record is one of the best records of that era. There's not a single skipper on that that record. And I think probably within an hour, I could pick up a guitar and remember how to play that whole record front to back again. I mean, it had wow. that big of an impact on me. That's how much I practiced those songs. I could probably play them again. That's so awesome. Yeah, I, I'm impressed, be, especially learning the whole album, all the tabs, everything. Because I think I only ever learned like two or three songs that weren't songs I wrote. It's hard. It's hard to learn other people's music. But that, that's that's what taught me song structure. I, I, I don't think that I would have had a, a, a good grasp on writing music had I not learned other people's music and kind of seen how they constructed things. Right. Um, and that's what helped me out. I mean, I've I've only had two lessons outside of my dad showing me a couple chords. Um, and my mom hired this kind of hair metal guy to teach me. And I was like, I just want to learn how to play these songs. I don't want to learn dueling banjos and all that garbage. And I only had like a couple lessons with this guy and he got like super fed up because I wasn't practicing dueling banjos on my guitar. Right. And I was like, you're a metal guy. Why am I learning dueling banjos? I didn't realize how important it would be later in life to to know those scales. But (laughs) here I was telling him how to teach me how to play guitar. So eventually I just dropped out of lessons. Yeah, I did the same thing. They brought out the Mel Bay bass theory book. And, you know, I was I, I just... I was like, I'm not into it. No. But then my friend ended up being my teacher. So I would bring him like Promise Ring and Texas is the Reason and Weezer songs. And he would teach me those. That's great. That's that's how most of my teachers ended up being. I just went to a couple. Uh, there was a guy from a band called Naked Ape here in town that was a pretty good metal guitar player. And I would just like, I just want to learn to, to play these songs. And I'd pay him like 50 bucks a lesson or whatever for him to teach me like five metal songs. And that was pretty much what I did. So how do you get from a Allison Chains slash pantera cover band to writing your own stuff i I eventually just started taking the stuff that i had learned like early on too when i started playing 
they sounded a lot like Pantera and Alice in Chains. And it was like, I was pretty much just ripping them off and then putting a little twist on there to make it slightly different chord progression. But you could definitely see where the influence was coming from. That's pretty much how it was. And then I didn't play guitar for maybe a couple of years before I met Jess, who was an amazing guitar player and way better than I probably would have ever been even at his age, like he was so advanced. He was in jazz band and all that stuff. He saw me play uh, in a punk rock band at a battle of the bands at my high school. And I played bass in that and sang. And he came up to me two days later and said, Hey, you want to start a band with me? We need a bass player. And I was like, sure. And that's basically how Cola started was me meeting him in English class and him asking me if I wanted to play bass with him. Do you ever think about that and just think, that's amazing. This guy asked you to join this band and you ended up recording some of the best music that's ever existed. I mean, you probably don't see it like that, but that's how I see it. There, there's not a day that goes by that I, I look at where I've been and what I've done and I'm completely in awe that any of that's happened in my life. And, yeah. and then I like, honestly, uh, Jess and I kind of had an on and off relationship for about a, a year. And then I went to a local show at the Rumba Box uh, because uh, 108 Shelter and uh, Sean's band Restrain was playing. But I didn't know who Sean was at the time. But I just wanted to go make fun of the Hare Krishna people because my friend David was a stoner and thought it'd be funny to go make fun of the Hare Krishna people. And little did I know that it would change my life because I went into that show thinking I was going to make fun of these people. And then Jess comes out of the crowd. And at the time he was a Hare Krishna and he comes up to me and was just like, Hey man, how you been? It's good to see you. I haven't talked to you in a while. Are you doing okay? And then we like kind of connected. And then I got in this circle with them doing the Redunga drum and doing their chants and everything like that. And then right after that, Sean played and two times in a row on the same night, there was Jess and Sean Ingram. I watched Sean Ingram just completely blow my mind singing for his band Restrain. And then I rekindled a friendship with Jess and two people that I would go on to do this music with were in the same room on the same night. And within a year, we were all together in one group. Wow. It's crazy. It's fate aligning. Yes. Yes. How do you think, I think about this a lot. It's interesting that even out in Kansas City, the Hare Krishna thing was going around in hardcore music circles. I have a friend who grew up in Argentina, and she said, even in the music circle there, people were into Hare Krishna and vegetarianism. I, I'd love to know, I'd love to like trace it back to its origin to see where the crossover is. I'm not sure. I think it was a lot of the uh, straight edge kids not wanting to go the militant route. You know, they wanted to be the the no sex, the no drugs, the no meat, the no, you know, dairy, the whole nine yards, but they didn't want the stigma of being these tough guys. And I think they all probably were looking for some guidance, you know, that they were looking for something to guide them through life. And, you know, yeah. many of them may like with me, you know, I tried to be Catholic. I tried Latter-day Saints. I tried Christianity. I tried everything trying to find, something that would help guide my life. And then when I met Jess and discovered Hare Krishna, that took over my life for about two years. And, and like in the early days of Coalesce, I was a Hare Krishna with Jess. Mm -hmm. um, we were the two Hare Krishnas in a mostly Boogan high school in, in you know, Wyandotte County, Kansas. You know, 
all these hicks and jocks and stuff like that looking at these two bald kids you know walking around in dodies with their heads shaved with the sika and all that stuff with these bags wrapped around our neck as we chanted you know every day and we were the two weirdos in school oh god i can imagine what you guys had to put up with in that area being into that yeah i mean it was weird but i mean jess jess's family was politicians some were mm-hmm. on the school board and his, and his grandpa was the mayor at the time. So wow. he was also into sports at one point. So all the jocks knew him from basketball and sports and stuff like that. So they were just like, this is Jess, you know, but then there was me and like, who in the hell is this guy type of thing. So <laughs> I wasn't friends with any of his former friends. So I was a weird Hare Krishna guy. So they automatically assumed it was probably me that got him into it. Not the opposite. I see. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, like, depending on who you are and your status, you can just get away with certain things. Like, I had a friend in high school who was kind of popular, and he had a sick of it all shirt on, and people were like, oh, what's that? Oh, cool. And then I came in with a Dillinger Escape Plan shirt on, and people were like, what the <laughs> fuck is that, nerd? Get out of here. Like, <laughs> it just depends who you are. Yeah, it was like, before I met Jess, he saw my high school picture, and it was this stoned kid with this, like, mullet. And I was wearing a Pantera t-shirt. And then <laughs> the next high school picture was this shaved-haired kid with a shelter shirt on. And it was this total opposite thing. But yeah, I was I was in the same position. Yeah. And it's very interesting to hear you say that you were searching for structure of some sort and trying out different things. Because that never even crossed my mind, nor did I try it. And I think that's part of the reason that I slipped into alcohol and drug abuse for so long because I was always directionless. I didn't think about my future. I didn't really think about ideals. I didn't think about, I I don't know, any of the things that give your life meaning and purpose. So I just kind of drifted from place to place and then took the easy way out. So it's, I don't know, it's it's very interesting to hear that you were looking for some type of structure. Yeah, I mean, and I still continue to try to find some meaning to my life. I mean, having a family and a wife, that's definitely given me reason, but I'm still looking for meaning, I guess. There's always this kind of little niggle at the back of my head of, am I just kind of moving on directionless? Am I doing the right thing? I'm just trying to be the best person I can while trying to figure out what my direction is. Even at 45, I have no idea. And I think that's a good thing because it keeps you moving forward it keeps you open to new things i think it keeps you a little open to try some different things maybe oh yeah yeah for sure yeah like when i was young i isolated a lot i didn't want to really be involved with anything organized sports and when i grew up later i just thought anything that people did was stupid like if people are in a bowling league that's stupid if people are getting together to play cards that's stupid like but i've realized how important these organized structured oh, yeah. type things are especially when you're young i mean it keeps you on a schedule it gives you a sense of community of relating to others yeah i mean i i wouldn't i've told my wife and i've told the guys in my band and stuff like that it's like i wouldn't know who i was without the things i've done in my life like i, I can't identify who i am without those things like immediately associating myself with those it's like yeah. hard for me to know who i am without associating myself with those things. So you see Sean perform, you know Jess, you're hanging out with Jess now, so how do we decide to get a band together? Um, Jess and I started uh, playing with 
his then band, which was the name of the band was Amara. It was this Hari Krishna, you know, hardcore band. And so I was practicing with him for a couple months. And then within two months, we were already playing our, our, our first shows as Amara. Amara only lasted maybe six months once I joined. And then we started to migrate into what would eventually become Coalesce. We started, we moved from Amara after a couple of shows and then we became Breach. And then shortly after we became Breach, the other two members of Amara left. And then Jess and I found Jim Red. Uh, I had basically set in, played bass for this basically like a helmet quicksand style cover band called mm-hmm. Loaf here in town. And I met Jim Red, who was playing drums with them at the time. And then as soon as Jess, we lost our other members, I told Jess, don't worry about it. I'll call this guy Jim. He's amazing. So I set up the practice for us all to be there. And then something happened at the last minute that I couldn't make it. So Jess had to go in blind, having never met Jim Red, and basically go in there and it's like, well, what the hell do we do? Stacy's not here. He was kind of the guy that knew both of us. <laughs> and then Jim is just finally like, well, show me what you guys are doing. And then he immediately started playing with him. And then within an, within 30 minutes, I got a call from Jess saying, I can't believe how good this guy is. And he, wow. like Jess is always just like 11 all the time. So as soon as they were done with their practice, he called me up and just blew my phone up and told me how awesome the experience was. And next time I had to be there because there's no more of this, just sending them blind on these, <laughs> these additions with people <laughs> and stuff like that, that he doesn't know. But it was a good thing because they really hit it off. So how does Sean get into the mix? Um, well, we played that first show with Amara in Sean Ingram's basement, and it was his going away show because he was going to Syracuse to go to college. He was actually, I think he lived in the house across the street from the Earth Crisis people, Carl and all them. Oh. So yeah. He went there to be part of that scene. Like He was like militant vegan. Like The funny thing about that first show, and I've told the story a couple times, is that we played that show and I never seen anything that's extreme. I'm like, I'm not like that. I'm not like this extreme personality, but we went to Taco Bell after this show, all these hardcore and Hari Krishna guys and stuff like that. And Sean ordered his food and it was supposed to be vegan. He got a tostada. He didn't want anything but lettuce and tomato on there and nothing else. Beans, lettuce and tomato. And they put cheese on it. And he was about to firestorm the Taco Bell. He was going to go burn that place to the (laughs) ground for putting cheese on his tostada. So that was like my <laughs> first experience with Sean. I was like, that dude's a great singer, but man, that dude's extreme. Uh, <laughs> and then he went to Syracuse and we had tried out like a handful of singers. And then he came back like his, his stay in Syracuse didn't last very long. He just kind of became disillusioned with it. And Jess and I had been writing music and I was just like, let's just ask Sean. He's back in town. And Jess like, no way Sean will do it. He's way, way too cool for us. Yeah. So we sent him an early demo of stuff that we had been working on with Jim. And then a couple of weeks later, he comes over and he like he has this whole lyric book and everything. And he's ready. He's like, all right, which one do you want to do first? I want to do the first song on the demo. So we started playing it. And as we started playing the song, we got to what would be the chorus. And he starts screaming to be resurrected again, 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 again. And that song became uh, Harvest of Maturity. Yes. And it, like my, my heart just jumped and Jess was rolling on the floor. He literally just fell down and a fit of laughter and just couldn't believe what he was seeing. And we all looked at each other and was like, 
this is the band. And we, from that moment on, we opened a dictionary, put our thumb on the first word we found in the, the letter C, and it was coalesce. Wow. <laughs> you telling that story about the Harvest of Maturity writing session, I, I got like a chill down my spine. I didn't realize how big of an impact that song would have when we wrote it either. Uh, when we went on our first tour, that that was there was a lot of controversy around that song still within the hardcore scene. And there was a lot Why of is people. That? Uh, because Sean wrote it when he got back from Syracuse and he kind of wrote it with, because he was disillusioned with the whole militant hardcore scene and saw that there was no path forward that wouldn't end in some violence or misunderstanding or, you know, anything like that. So his whole idea was like, well, I'm just going to burn this whole thing into the ground. Yeah. That, That was what the whole purpose of harvest was. So a lot of those militant hardcore kids did not like that. Uh, we played mm. our. We drove to New York City and we played the Limelight of all places for our first show on that first wow. Coalesce tour. And we had no we had no business being there, man. We were at the Limelight and we played with two hip hop guys, uh, the Lords of Brooklyn and the Troubleneck yeah. Brothers. Lords with think, a Z. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they were just these two hip hop groups at the time, and then you had these bald hardcore kids opening for these two hip hop groups with only the reps from Eric there to watch us play. And, wow. you know, we were tackling each other and just dove off the six foot stage into the audience. And all you heard was feedback and they thought he died. They thought he flew off the stage <laughs> and, and, you know, knocked himself out. And our second show was, I think Cleveland, Ohio. And when we got there, there was two carloads full of kids that had bats and pipes telling us, you know, so-and-so sends his regards. Don't plan on making the rest of this tour. Whoa. So they were Jesus. there to basically make sure we didn't make it the rest of the tour because of Harvest of Maturity. Wow. Whoa. What a what a great song to evoke such controversy. Yeah, and who knew? I, I just thought it, was, it had a cool chorus in it. I didn't realize <laughs> how, yeah. how much of an impact it was going to have and how affected people would be by it to the point that they would want to, you know, hurt us over yeah. words. So that's when I, I, I kind of knew we were having an impact some way. Yes. So... Did you finish the tour or did the guys with the pipes? No, stop no, that? we finished the tour. Uh, 108 and, and Bloodlet showed up a few minutes later and it was like, well, there's four of you and with the Coalesce and us two bands, there's like 15 of us. So you have a choice here. You can try to do this or we can go inside and be friends and play music. Yeah. And they, they wow. made, like four of them left and the other four came in. And by the end of the show, we had won them over after we'd kind of talked to them and talked them through what Harvest was about and where we were. And they basically understood. And from that point on, they. That's going to be a great scene in Hardcore the movie, which I will one day write and direct. <laughs> if you do, I'll be the old guy in the background that watches my young self played by someone else on screen do it. <laughs> yeah, like the wind will be blowing and then you'll like turn around and you'll be in a wheat field. Yep. Oh, it's, I got the whole thing down. It's going to be great. Wow, that's, that's amazing. And one of the things I always loved so much about Colesque is the lyrics and just how outspoken you guys were. And because even though I was a hardcore kid, because I was disillusioned with everything and like against everything, like Coalesce were in the scene, but even disillusioned with that. And Sean would talk about that a lot and his criticisms of things. And I I just always really liked that and respected that. Yeah. And and Sean, 
between Sean and Nathan Ellis and the casket ladder, they are two of my favorite lyricists of all times. Uh, yeah. Sean is so introspective and honest and brutal in his lyrics. And I love yes. every aspect of that. And he would come to us with lyrics and have us, he would do the lyrics for us, like play with us. And then he would come to us with the actual lyric book. And sometimes it was like, is this too much? And I was like, dude, we're never going to tell you what you can and cannot say. I mean, yeah. as long as you're not threatening, threatening to kill somebody that we know or something like that in a lyric, you know, <laughs> write whatever you want. I mean, we're here for you. We're your guys. We'll back you up, whatever you decide. So those early days, did you, how much touring did you do? You played in New York City. You played in Cleveland, Ohio. We'd, we'd never been out of Kansas City besides Wichita, Kansas, which is about three hours out of here. And when we ended up signing with Earache, um, they booked that first tour with us. And sent us out with Bloodlet and 108. So the summer, the the kind of springtime thing leading up to that tour, we ended up uh, doing a show with 108 at a local club so we could kind of get acquainted with those guys. And then we did a show a couple weeks later, excuse me, uh, with Bloodlet in Wichita so we could all kind of meet each other and say, hey, we're going to be on the road for three months together. Because I'd never been out of Kansas City, and then all besides Wichita, and then I went to the United States for like two and a half months with 108 and Bloodlet, starting in New York City. So there was this whole experience of us Midwesterners driving to New York City and being welcomed by a taxi driver driving by telling us to go back to Kansas City, you fuckers, or something to that effect. (laughs) And Jess was like hanging his head out the window, so excited to see the Statue of Liberty and so excited to see New York. And the first thing he got was go back to Kansas City, fuckers. And he's like, and I love this. This is exactly what New York is. He was so excited. I love that. So, yeah, we went to New York City and then we toured across the the coast to the west coast and then circled all the way back around and did the whole east coast again how did you survive did you get paid for the shows did you have to sleep in the van <laughs> that's a funny question actually our first tour guarantee was 50 dollars a show that's what they were paying us to open for 108 and bloodlet and there was maybe maybe 10 or 15 nights where we actually made the 50 dollar guarantee yeah, And most other nights we made whatever we could sell in merch, which wasn't very much because no one knew who we were. And most of the towns we would show up with, the uh, the flyers would, wouldn't even have the right name on there. So we, we were called Cold Cuts at one time. <laughs> and then we were called Coalescence. And then once they realized it was Coalesce, they scratched out enough lepr- letters on the actual flyer to make it say Coalesce. <laughs> so it was just funny stuff like that the whole time. So, I mean, we didn't make, we didn't make any money. And then like the East coast were fairly consistent threats in the Northeast from the hardcore kids. And then by the time we got to the West coast, that was mostly protesters, like anti Hari Krishna protesters. We saw a lot of the times. You and Jess, were you still into the Hari Krishna belief system during yep. those early days of touring? Yeah, I, I was until about 97, and Jess was until about 98. So what made you drift away from that? Disillusion. It, it, like, I tried several other religions, and I, I found that while on the surface it seemed a little better on the Hare Krishna side, underneath everything, it was everything that turned me off of the other religious approaches was still there, but just in a different way. Um, yeah. And, you know, some of the treatment from some of the Hare Krishna people while we were on that first tour was particularly 
didn't set well with me. And that was pretty much when I set, I, I was, I was done with it by the end of that tour. I was just like, I don't have much left in me as far as this goes. So what, what did they do specifically? Did, were they like, Oh, we don't like what you represent or something like um, that. They, some of them were talking down on us and stuff like that. And then we did a few shows where we would get to a town and the show had like 10 or 12 bands on the bill. And 108 was supposed to be like the headliner. And 108 was just like, well, we don't want to go on at two o'clock in the morning. We want an early slot. We're here to represent Hare Krishna. So we're going to, we're going to take your slot at five o'clock and then we're going to throw you on at three o'clock in the morning when no one's here. Oh, so, and that happened several times and it, and it, got to the point which I, I if this gets back i don't know how much it's gonna make anyone upset but basically we played a, a festival in long island and our representative from earache was with us for the last leg of the east coast tour and by the time we got to long island we were playing this festival and they decided they wanted our slot at 2 p.m and we had to take their headlining slot at 1 a.m can't you just say no <laughs> we we they were just like well we're the headliners. You make 50 bucks Ugh. type thing. And, and and they had, you know, 108 had a guru with them. One of their, their gurus with them at the time. And he was traveling with them. And it was like, well, he's old. He has to, you know, we have to be done by a certain time so we can get him to his meditation so he can go to bed early. And that was like their excuse for that last leg of the tour. Oh my God. And Lou, Lou de, Lou de Carolesse from Eric was just like, no, 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 no. These, these, these kids aren't doing anything. No one knows who these guys are. No one's going to stick around and watch them play at midnight or one o'clock. Yeah. So he, he was fighting it the whole time. And when they just absolutely refused to bend on it, he's like, that's fine. And then the next day was CBGB's. That was our, that was the last show of our tour with CBGB's. So he called ahead to CBGB's and said, we're instating a new policy that if you're not here by four o'clock for load in, that you don't play the show knowing that, (laughs) knowing that they wouldn't make it by four o'clock. Yeah. So they drove into the city and they show up at like five o'clock and there's like, no, you guys are off the show. You didn't make it in time. (laughs) Hilarious. And this kind of, just kind of did that to them. And I was just like, I've never told that story to anybody because it's just like, I'm, I'm friends with Rob from one away on (laughs) Rob fish and all that stuff still on Facebook. And yeah. I was just like, I've never told anyone that story before. But yeah, they basically said, no, you don't treat our boys like that. This is what you get. So did they actually not get to play the no, show? No, they didn't get to play the show. That's awesome, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know what? With with these old stories, I think it's just fun to tell the stories. Yeah. Like, I'm sure you don't dislike Rob or he dislike you oh, or anything no, like no. that. At the what time. What happened is like yeah. a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. And at the time, I was like, that guy's kind of a dick. But, you know, <laughs> at, because I'd never been on tour and he was kind of like the big brother that just kind of roughhoused all of us. Like he wanted to play, you know, street basketball and, you know, street football. And he was just roughing us all up and all this stuff. That guy's, that guy's kind of a jerk. And then I look back and I was like, that dude's a big brother. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, years later, I ran into him. He's like, you probably still don't like me for how I treated you guys on that tour. And I was like, no, dude, you were totally a big brother, man. I look back on those days and, and I, I love those days. I look back at those memories where I was so frustrated with him. And I look back at them now and I'm just like, man, those were some of the best days of my life. That was so awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I mean, shit, being on tour with 108 uh-huh. during, during one of the heydays of the oh, scene. Yeah. yeah. I mean, come on. Yep. Do you ever think back, like, essentially your first band was Coalesce. Yeah, yeah. Like, 
like you hit a home run right there. You could have just been like, that's it. I'm done. I've done it twice, you know, with Cascalator and Coalesce. You know, it's, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I don't, I don't think I'm here because of my musical ability. I'm here because I just happened to be in the right place at the right time and just met the right group of people that helped me be a better musician. When I get really into a band, like I am with Coalesce, I... I do a deep dive. Like I used to go on eBay and buy old out of print CDs of yours. Uh-huh. I know there's, there's like several variations of the songs from zero zero two in a safe place out there. Yep. Now you guys ended up re-recording those songs a number of times until it ended up with the final zero zero two, a safe place release, which I think is my overall favorite Cole S release. It's the one I go back to the most. The songs are just unbelievable. And if I, if I just think about them, like I want to throw myself through a window, it's just, <laughs> it's just, it's just amazing. But like, I, I haven't really seen that before where a, like a band will re-record the same couple songs a number of times. Did you guys just really like them and you wanted to perfect them or like, what was, what was going on? Yeah, I, th- I think it was a little bit of that because especially Sean, like Sean as a vocalist, you know, from our first seven inch with harvest on there with his kind of like barky vocals and not the growly vocals that we know Sean for now. Like he looks back on those and while not embarrassed, he's just like, I just know so much more about what I'm doing with my voice now. And after we heard the news, Sean, like when we started working on, uh, um, give them rope and we started working on those songs, a lot of give them rope songs were actually, the last half of the things we wrote with Jim red, like we wrote like half of give them rope with Jim red. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we kind of had those songs on the back burner. And when Sean came back, he had the Sean voice by the time we saw him again. And that was like 96. And at that point, like we were offered to do like, I, I think because zero zero two was out of print, we wanted to redo some of the stuff on there. And, and, and then some of the older songs were out of print because they were released on seven inches. So we wanted to redo those so that we could have tighter musicianship on the new ones. And then also Sean's new vocals. Yeah. And that's also when in tongues, we speak the uh, napalm death happened too. Cause I think we did a bunch of those in one session uh, while we were doing the napalm death split. Yeah. And boy, I'm glad you did because the Harvest of Maturity version that's on the Napalm Death Split, I go back and listen to that, and I listen to Zero Zero Two is Safe Place a whole lot. Those, oh man, those all those songs together is just, woof, like, it really does it for me. Yeah, I was really happy with the, the Harvest Maturity redo, because when I originally wrote some of those parts for that, I was listening to Rage Against the Machine at the time, so you get a little more of the funky bass on there, and at this time, I was, I was like, I don't want any more funky bass on that song. Could I please lose that funky bass part? So we just wrote the, like the chuggy part instead of the funky bass part from the original version. So what kind like Coalesce is such a unique band. It doesn't really sound like anything else. And ultimately I think that's what you want with a band. You want it to be your thing. You don't want to just sound like someone else. You want to like plant your stake in the ground and be like, this is us. And Coalesce sure achieved that. What kind of influences, what influenced you? I mean, I guess it sounds like Jess was just a one-of-a-kind, once-in-a-lifetime guitar player, so I'm sure that had some effect. But what were some of your influences? You know, my, my influences were actually more on the pop side of things. You know, I listened to a lot of si- Simon Gallup from The Cure and mm-hmm. Sting 
and bass players like that. And that's what inspired me as a bass player and, and Stuart Zender from a band like Jamiroquai. Mm-hmm. Like those were the bass players that inspired me. And, and while I was doing some kind of mutated bastardized versions of what I heard them doing, it was still kind of me. I brought me to what they were doing. That's the, that's the best I can describe it. Yeah, I'm remembering the end of one, this one Coalesce song on 002, A Safe Place. There's like this jazzy kind of funky bass breakdown. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I could remember the name of the song, but I, I can hear what you're talking about now. Yeah, I can't remember it either, but I know what you're talking about. Why do you end up leaving the band and how? We had finished recording uh, Give Them Rope. And like the whole process of doing Give Them Rope was like real stressful because at the time, like we were, li- Jess and I were living in the same house together in, in Kansas City, Kansas, and mm-hmm. and he was going through some some stuff in his life at the time, and I was going through a pretty bad breakup at the time, and we were also writing "Give Them Rope" at the time, and there was this like this whole concept that was actually eventually abandoned for the record. Uh, originally, it was this whole concept. I wouldn't say torture but it kind of had a torture vibe to it. Like we had this, we did all these photo sessions for the record leading up to it to where Jess was in a, a bathtub with broken glass and he was completely naked in this old house. And it was like this really kind of artsy black and white photo of him in a old, like four foot tub with glass in it, kind of twisted, kind of like a tool vibe. Um, and then yeah, Sean yeah. did something similar and then I was hung from a tree out in front of our house naked. <laughs> so we were all naked. There's this whole thing. And and Sean had this whole concept. It was amazing. And then James DeWeese says, oh, no, no, I got someone that's going to do mine. We're going to do my photos and stuff like that. So we were like, okay, cool. She's like, she's a professional photographer. Totally sold us on this. So Sean is putting this whole, <laughs> this whole thing together. And then James DeWeese shows up. And it's a picture of him in cowboy boots with a Batman cowl on naked hanging from a captain D sign in Liberty, Missouri. And then (laughs) another one of it's him sitting on a bench at a McDonald's, one of those big plastic Ronald McDonald's naked with a Batman cowl and cowboy boots on. And then Sean saw that and just like trashed the whole concept. So there was this this kind of, (laughs) there was a stress there. And then it was kind of realized when they did the re the, the remaster of give them rope years later and had the kind of more, uh, contemporary art look to it versus the old angel in the clouds look of the original version. But just writing that record was really hard because I was in that house. I was the only one in the band that was working at the time because Jess wasn't working and his live in girlfriend at the time wasn't working, but I was working like 70 hours a week at a job. I was setting up blockbuster videos in Kansas city and mm. I was managing a blockbuster video in Kansas city. So I was like spending all my nights, building blockbusters and then my days managing blockbusters. Oh my God. Um, wow. And I was trying to balance all this at the same time. And I just kept feeling that I was falling farther and farther behind with the guys. And then eventually I just felt like I wasn't connecting with them anymore. Like it just was no longer my band. Um, yeah. So we finished give them rope. We did that tour cycle, which was like, pretty hard on me because I had some crap happen with my bank to where I lost my credit card. So I had Mm -hmm. to spend the whole tour borrowing money from Dan Askew from second nature 
So by the time I got back from tour, I basically like owed him my entire tour money and all my check from my job because I had to keep borrowing money from him. And then uh, we played Wilkes-Barre Festival, which was the infamous festival in uh, Pennsylvania where the girl got hit with the, the, the floor tom. And a lot, yeah. of, a lot of controversy happened around that. And then, and you know what? That that story comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't there at the time. This predates my my time in the scene uh-huh. by a little bit. What was the controversy? Now the girl gets hit with a drum, right? Were, were you guys just ostracized as a band for making things unsafe, or w- what was some of the controversy? Yeah, what ended up happening is that you know our our, our stage presence for all that time was someone in our band was going to end up bleeding or cut open or a guitar was going to be smashed and hit somebody or, yeah. but it was usually contained to the stage and the band. Well, in this one case, James DeWeese wanted to be part of this. So at the end of his set, he basically tackled his drum kit, grabbed a floor Tom and kind of tossed it beach ball style over his head. And it landed in the crowd, and then they surfed it all the way back to the the back of the venue where the merch tables were. And then someone tossed it over their head, and it hit a girl at the Get Up Kids merch table. And the next thing you know, we have the fire marshal there. We have the police department there. We have all these people saying, Coalesce attacked a girl. You know, they're attacking women. (laughs) And we were still up there, like, beating each other up on stage <laughs> and this girl is back there with a drum to her head and we don't know what's going on until we're done and as soon as we walk out like we're surrounded by police officers in the fire department asking why we're assaulting women and it's like what are you talking about what happened because at that point when the state when the whole thing happened when i saw the drum fly i literally unplugged my guitar packed up my head and rolled out the door i was done i was like yeah, that's my last show with Coalesce. I knew right then and there that was my last show with Coalesce. Wow. Like, I was like, this isn't what I'm about anymore. I'm not happy with this. So I rolled my equipment to the van, opened the door, slid it in the van, and then I took a real long walk. And then by the time I got back, the police were there, and the fire marshal was there and all this stuff, and we were being questioned about assaulting a woman and whether or not she was going to press charges and stuff like that. And And James was like grabbing merch off all the surrounding bands tables and is like, I'll buy this merch for you. I'm sorry. I'll buy this merch for you. He's like trying to apologize to her because he never intended her to get hit. Yeah. And it wasn't like James just went up like baseball bat style and like slammed her in the head with it. It just got surfed to the back of the room and she got hit by it. Um, Did she end up pressing charges or anything? No, she laughed it off because like it hit her on the head of the drum. So it wasn't like it hit her with a rim or a leg or the drum uh, itself. I kind of the head hit her and bounced off. The story you always hear in the legends of message boards <laughs> and everywhere oh, else yeah. is always like coalesce through a drum directly at a girl's head and the girl died. No, no, we, we weren't, we weren't, uh, we weren't Dillinger escape plan where people were, you know, getting hurt all the time <laughs> or catching each other on fire or anything like that. We were, we were never that extreme. But no, yeah. she she just she was just an innocent bystander that got clocked by a drum that was beach balled back to the back of the 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 venue, and she got hit in the head. And we apologized, yeah. and we went on to the next show. But by the time we got back, you know, this is kind of early days of the internet. But like you said, you know, by the time we got back, message boards were blowing up about like we were just attacking people across the United States, and it was yeah. just the weirdest thing ever. It's like that's not who we are. We're like really tame people when we're not on stage and i i was the same way i would 
letting it all out on stage was the only place I would let it all out. Yeah, so yeah. after that incident, did you guys pull it back a bit? Was there any change? Um, after about, we got back from that tour. Like we actually had two more shows booked for that, that trip. But mm-hmm. after that show, James DeWeese's drum kit was completely destroyed. Yeah. Jess broke his last two guitars on that set. He broke two guitars during that set. <laughs> and then like, I was the only one that actually had equipment left. And it was just like, and some of the bands that were playing that festival were also going to play the last couple shows we were playing back, back to our house. And Jess is just like, we'll just borrow equipment. And I looked at Jess like, well, who the fuck is going to loan us equipment after the week? What we just did. <laughs> <laughs> and that was like, by the by, I was like, let's just go home. I'm done. So we drove back home and that, that was kind of it for me. So you're out. Yep. How was it at that time? Cause when I was younger, I didn't know how to process anything in any kind of healthy way. And I don't know, I would just hate the band and hate the people and never listen to anything they did again. How did you handle it at that time? We got When we got back, it was kind of a weird thing because Jess wanted to fire me from the band. Yeah. And I was going to quit. <laughs> so we hadn't, we hadn't talked for about three weeks. I got back, and as soon as I got back, I started a new job at another retail uh, management thing. Mm-hmm. And then I hadn't seen him for like two weeks. He calls me up, says, hey, let's go grab dinner tonight. And I was like, okay, let's do that, man. We haven't hung in a while. He wanted to go bro down, he said. And then mm-hmm. I walk into the place, and I think it's just going to be Jess and I. And then I walk in, and all all the guys that call us are sitting at the table. Oh, no. And I walk in. It's like, before you guys say anything, I quit. Yeah, that's like walking into your own intervention, where it's yep. like, all right, I already fucking know what's going to happen. Stop. So I walked in. I literally said, before you say a word, I quit. And no hard feelings. I mean, I was going to do this anyway. Obviously, well, this isn't working out. So I think you should find someone that will better fit what you're looking for and i'm glad to walk that's so weird they they set it up like a mafia hit yeah yeah <laughs> like, like if they pretend to be your friend they're like come on we're that's gonna right. go get something to eat we totally predated the sopranos and all this <laughs> but no no, no, he, no karen two more two more doors down karen yeah yeah exactly exactly good fellas no just keep no, walking no, let's keep walking I got, some, I got some dresses in <laughs> uh, Jimmy, I just, I just hurt somebody. I gotta go. I yeah, gotta go, exactly. Jimmy. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, but, but then that happened, and you know, and then the next day, Sean, Sean, and I got together, and Sean's like, I didn't want to be part of that. And I was like, dude, don't even worry about it, man. I'm not mad at any of you guys. It's like I'm, I'm relieved because you know I wanted to go, and this just made it easier when I walked in and saw you guys, and I kind of knew what was, what was going to happen. It just made it easier for me just to go. Yeah, and, you can't fire me. I quit. Yeah, exactly. It's but, like that I mean, type of deal. I was still, I was still friends with all those guys. I still hung out with James. And I still hung out with Sean. And then, even like, after you exited the band, yeah, yeah. And then uh, about two weeks later, I was just like, "Have you found anyone to replace me in the band?" And there was like, "Well, we're talking to Nathan." I was like, "Well, that's good because I was actually going to call and recommend you talk to Nathan Ellis because he had toured with us so many times." He had similar, yeah. you know, sensibilities. He was an amazing musician. And I was, yeah. I was like, you need someone that's going to to complement the band. And from that point on, Coalesce, I mean, I love my time with Coalesce. But to be honest with you, Coalesce was way better once Nathan joined the band. Because he brought something to that group that I never could offer them. So and and it was just such a different band and they were so much more refined and they had some kind of direction and Jess finally had a writing partner that was 
can mirror him and kind of feed off his energy and take it in a new creative direction. And, and Nate really made that band better. Wow. You know, I, I love how mature you sound. And I, I love when people have this attitude. Cause when I was younger, like my first band, I quit because it was going in a direction I didn't really like. And I didn't talk to, well, no, I was still friends with everyone, but one guy in the band pretty much. And I never listened to anything they did again. And I, you know, we didn't really reconcile things until much, much, much later. But for you to be in that situation and walk away and be mostly friends with everyone. And not only that, but say like, oh, I have this other guy who I think would be great for you. Like, it's such a healthy, positive attitude. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason not to. I mean, they were my friends and my brothers for so long. I mean, yeah. they were they were as as much a brother to me as my blood brothers and you know i love those guys to this day and they meant the world to me and even though it wasn't for me anymore i knew that they had a bright future ahead of them and i didn't want to impede that at all i wanted them to go on and and do everything they could that's excellent and of course now you're in the casket lottery another home run with nathan ellis yeah that, that was that's another one of those things it's just pure luck you know, because Nathan Nathan was my co-pilot through those Coalesce tours because by the time we would finish playing our shows, you know, Jess and Sean and everyone would be so beat up by the end of the show that not, no one wanted to drive. So it was yeah. either me or Dan Askew that would drive at night. And then eventually when Nathan kind of came into the mix, Dan realized that he could finally sleep through the night in the van and then Nathan would be my co-pilot. And he would just kind of be the guy that was my DJ and everything like that. And we would bond over shutter to think and quicksand and giant's chair and boy's life. And yeah. every time we would have these late night drives, he would, we would like tell our dreams to each other. And it's like, this is what I want to be doing. I love what I'm doing now, but this is where I want to end up. I want to be playing in a band like this and every, yeah. and, and Nate was always just like, well, when we get home, let's do it, man. Let's, let's start this band. I said, I got some songs on a demo tape at home. Let's do this. And then after Coalesce, uh, after I left Coalesce in 97, I was about ready just to hang it up. And I was ready to be done. And a, a really close childhood friend of mine uh, named John Sidwell came to me and was just like, you can't quit, man. I mean, you're so talented. You know, I don't want to see you give this up. I said, I've loved everything you've done. Just give me a couple of days and I'll find something for you. And two days later, he calls us like, I've got a, a friend in a punk rock band that their guitar player is about ready to be kicked out. And they need a new guitar player. Can you still play guitar? And I was just like, yeah, I can still play guitar. I went over and tried out for him. And then I was in a punk rock band for like six months. And mm-hmm. Nathan was touring with Coalesce for those six months. And there was a local venue called the Fuse Box that was about to shut its doors. So I organized a, uh, a benefit show for them to raise money to keep the doors open. And... I asked Coalesce to play. My punk rock band played and Season of Risk and a bunch of these local artists played. And at the end of the night, Nate was like, here's that cassette I promised you. And he handed me a cassette with what would be the early casket lottery stuff. And I took it home, listened to it that night and called him the next day. Is like, let's find a drummer. And then just like that. And like seriously, about maybe two weeks later, Nate's like, hey, man, I found a drummer. And I was like, really? Where'd you find him? I was skateboarding at some weird spot in Lee Summit, Missouri. And this kid, Nathan, shows up and he's talking about how he plays drums. And I said, well, I play guitar. 
and we should play together. And Nathan's like, okay. And that's pretty much how <laughs> they met. And that's how that got started. And it just worked out. Yeah. Yeah. And when we saw that kid play, we were just like, yeah, he's way too good for us. <laughs> I mean, Nathan Richardson was 15 when we met him and wow. I was 22 and he was 15 and Nathan was, I think, 17. And uh, so when we met Junior, it was just like that kid was way better than anyone I'd ever met at my age. Like he's 15, blowing away these 20-year-olds and stuff that have been playing way longer than him. And he was just a prodigy. That kid was so good. Um, so we played with him and we hit it off immediately. And the next thing you know, the writing process started happening and we had a dozen or more songs pretty quick. I remember... I th- it might have been your first tour. Choose Bronze was out, mm-hmm. and you were on tour with Small Brown Bike. Yep. And I remember seeing, I still remember seeing you guys on that tour, and that first song kicking in, and I'm like, there's the guy from Colesque, and there's the other guy from Colesque. <laughs> like, <laughs> we, we got that a lot. We got a lot of people that would come to those shows, and because the flyers used to say, featuring members of Coalesce. Yeah. You know, people would show up to those shows. And then as soon as we started playing what was the casket lottery stuff, you would see those same people that were so excited to see us turn right around and walk out of the venue because they were just like, <laughs> what the hell is this noisy emo crap? And then yeah. they would just all leave. It was pretty funny. It's like early on. So, yeah, it was kind of a blessing and a curse because, you know, we, we, we got people to come out and see us because of the coalesce name. And then we got them to leave right away as soon as we started playing. <laughs> I still remember seeing you, Stacy, because you were like, you had this big smile on your face and you're playing bass and like swaying back and forth. And I'm like, even though I hadn't seen you in Colesque, it was still like, Oh, that's the guy from Colesque. This, this seems different. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the whole breaking stuff started in Buffalo, New York on our first show back as Coalesce with uh, James DeWeese on drums. And the first mm-hmm. show back, back, we played with dead guy and several people at a VFW hall in Buffalo, New York. And 30 seconds into the song, someone unplugged my equipment, and then I swung my bass at them and then smashed it into pieces on this little drum riser, causing the drum riser to collapse and and sending James off the side of the stage. (laughs) And there's just bass pieces all over the place. And I just bought this bass two days before we left on trip. And that was pretty much what started that whole breaking thing. So to see me swaying and smiling was a, a lot different for some people that had seen me smash drum risers and break bases and cut myself open and do stuff like that on stage. It was way different for him. How do you deal with smashing instruments like that? I'm guessing you don't have a whole lot of money to burn. <laughs> I was doing retail management at the time and I was only making like $8 an hour or something like that at retail management. And I would basically take a whole paycheck, which at the time was about $400 every two weeks. And I would go to a pawn shop two days before we left and buy the cheapest $175, you know, $150 bases and take three of them with me and usually come back with none. (laughs) (laughs) The first time I saw Coalesque, Nathan was in the band. I guess it was, oh, it was a relapse showcase when, Mm -hmm. when, uh, what the hell album was out? The one Tommy was talking about. Functioning, no, functioning on impatience, yeah. Or was it zero one? No, zero one two wasn't out by then. No, this was before. Okay, so that that would be functioning. That was their their one big EP that came out before they went on to do relapse. I think. 
Yeah, maybe they were talking to relapse already, yep. but yeah. I remember it was uh, Dillinger escape plan. The bass player didn't end up showing up. Cole Lesk, I'll, I'll never forget that Cole Lesk show because this was only my second hardcore show. Uh-huh. And the first one, Dillinger escape plan played, and I almost died just because it was so insane. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was I was so scared. Like, I thought that's what happened at every single show. <laughs> it was. So so Cole S is about to go on, and I'm hiding. I'm, like, way to the left of the stage hiding, expecting this big explosion. And Cole S starts, and people were just in awe. Like, they started with the You Can't Kill Us All song, and Sean had the old-style microphone. Uh-huh. And the mic was cutting out, and you could still hear his voice, like, carrying throughout the whole venue. Yeah, it, it, he, he's incredible. That guy is so great. How, did you guys hear the transition? Could you recognize it in real time from like the higher pitch, screamier vocals to what it ended up as? Yeah, when we, when we got together with him that first time, when we all, Jess was living in St. Louis at the time, and he was living in the Hare Krishna temple, and we went to his wedding there, and when we got there, Jess was just like, I want to do Coalesce again. You want to do Coalesce again? And we were like, yeah. And then Jim Red didn't want to. And we're like, cool, get out of the picture. We'll find a new drummer. And we just kind of pushed <laughs> him to the side. And when we, and then I was looking for drummers for like two months while Jess was trying to find a place to live in Kansas City. And I tried this kid out named uh, Steve, who told me that he played for all these local bands. And then I finally touched base with all these local bands he supposedly played for. And I was like, yeah, we've never met that guy before in our life. And stuff like <laughs> that. And then finally, like, the funny thing about James DeWeese is that at one point he tried out to take Sean's place in Coalesce because Sean and Jim Red didn't get along. And Jim Red mm-hmm. said, well, I won't continue to play with the guys if Sean's still in the band. We need to find a new singer. And James was singing for a band at the time. And I was like, well, I got this friend James. He sings. Why don't we have him come try out? So he came and tried out. And I didn't realize that no one had talked to Sean about this and sean shows up in the middle of practice saying hey man when are we going to practice again and then james deweese is sitting there screaming as he walks in (laughs) and as soon as he sees sean he darts out the door jess says cool the band's broke up and then he walks out the door and then me and jim red are there with with sean ingram i'm like uh shrugging my shoulders not knowing what to, to say about the whole situation and then uh we split up, and then by the time we got back, Sean was just like, I want to do this professionally. So he went to a vocal coach that taught him how to properly scream, and wow. he discovered that growl. So when we came back, we were thinking the kind of yippy, screamy Sean, and then the first time he belted out those vocals with his new range, we were floored. I want to find out who that vocal coach is and thank them. Yeah, I'll have to find <laughs> out. There's, there's a, God, what's her name? There's a woman right now that teaches all these metalcore guys and hardcore guys how to sing properly. She does like videos and like. I've seen that. I've seen the, that yeah. before. Yeah, a friend of ours from A Life Once Lost, uh, Bob Meadows, is in one of the video, like one of the promotional videos. And I remember him posting it on Facebook and being like, wait, there's people out here that date, like that actually teach this? <laughs> like that's, and I, I just thought yeah. people kind of like discovered it or like, yeah, I'm going to do this now. So but as, might as well just blow my throat out. Yeah. And that's, that's my problem right now is that I've, I don't, I've never had a lesson as far as that goes. And these days when I try to scream anymore, it just shreds my throat. And I was like, I really need to learn how to do this. I know I'm like 20 years late to this party of trying to learn how to do it, 
but I need to learn how to do it before I'm this old raspy grandpa guy here in a few years that can't talk, you know, so I need to, le- I need to learn how to do it before I shred my, my throat. I'm with you on that. I still dream of fronting a hardcore band before I get too old. <laughs> and I, I know I can do the scream cause I was in a hardcore band and sometimes the singer would be late. So I'd step in while I was playing guitar and I can do it. I know I can do it. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if I'll front a band, but I'd like to definitely learn how to do it a little better and in, in what I do. Is Casket Lottery going to play Furnace Fest? Yeah, we're playing Furnace Fest. I think we're the last day with Kill Switch Engage. Oh. But what was funny is that when they posted the whole lineup, I think Taking Back Sunday is the Saturday. Yeah. And I saw Taking Back Sunday. is like, oh, we're obviously on Taking Back Sunday, Saturday. So I looked all <laughs> over there and it's was like, we're not there. People keep congratulating me for getting on Furnace Fest. And then I look on there. It's like, well, we're not there. Look at that. Take, we're not on Taking Back Sunday. And yeah. then I, I looked on the Kill Switch Engage, and I was just like, "We're there with the Get Up Kids on the Kill Switch Engage day. That's kind of a weird fit." <laughs> so I was like, "Who thought that's a good pairing? Like the Get Up Kids and Appleseed Cast, and then Kill Switch Engage, like closing the night." <laughs> so I was just like, "I don't know if they know their audience or not, but I don't know if the Get Up Kids, like a couple bands before Kill Switch, is really what you want in your lineup." But yeah, we're playing Furnace Fest. I'm pretty excited. Oh man, I'm I'm glad I will be there. Tommy will most likely be there. Sweet. Yeah, I I I it's literally every band I've ever liked on one show. Oh yeah, it's crazy how how much that was. I mean, even when they originally announced it before it got canceled because of COVID, like that lineup was like incredible. And then like they reannounced it with the new lineup, and I, I'm glad we were asked because we played the first two or three Furnace Fest back in the day. We were there mm-hmm. for the first one and. It's the same place. And then the second year we went back, like there was multiple stages and they had like art exhibits. And then the third time we went back, it was even more expanded than it was before. I went in 2003, I think. Maybe, no, maybe it was either 02 or 03. And it, it's a really cool venue. I oh, mean, yeah. it's an abandoned furnace. It's yeah. cool as shit. It's insane. Yeah. We, we, yeah. The, the year we played there, the first, I think the first or second year we played there, Dillinger Escape Plan played. And we watched them like catch an amp on fire. You know, one of the dudes got clocked in the back of the head. And he was just bleeding all over the place. And Ben was just diving off everything and like trying to stab people with his guitar headstock. And it was the most intense thing I'd ever seen. It was just like, we coalesce look like lightweights compared to that. And it was just like, yeah, those dudes are the pros. We're just over here kind of watching, you know? <laughs> So when you see a band like Dillinger or a newer band doing that, do you ever look at it and think, oh, we taught them that? Maybe a little. I mean, <laughs> I mean, th- those guys were, whatever they took from us, they, they took it so far past yeah. anything we would have imagined. Those guys are geniuses. I love that band so much. They're so good. They're truly one of a kind. I love them. And they they may have single-handedly sold me on being a lifetime extreme music fan. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, even for bands that weren't, weren't into that, like you heard it and it was Soundgarden. They toured with Soundgarden. Yeah. Did they really? Yeah. They, they did a whole summer tour with Soundgarden. They were there when, when Chris Cornell passed. Oh my God. Like shit. They were literally, they played Kansas city the night before uh, Chris Cornell ended up killing himself. Well, and I remember seeing interviews with those guys where they were just like, we hung with that guy like the night before. And then now we're in the next city and we get a call saying the show is off. Chris is gone. Oh, my God. 
And uh, like oh, you heard stories like that. Like I've seen interviews where it's like, it was like one day he's there and the next day we get the call saying that he's gone. So yeah, I mean, they, they, they were adored by everyone. It didn't have to be an extreme metal either. They were like adored by lighter bands. They were just like, you had freaking Justin Bieber and people like that wearing Dillinger skate plan shirts and stuff like that. And it's just weird. Yeah. They, they had big time crossover appeal and they were yeah. just, amazing and they went out on top that's the oh, way to yeah. do it yeah as a band breaking up that had to be so hard because they were really at the top of their game when they left and knowing what they did for the genre and music as a whole i mean they they were taking what coalesce was doing and then making people know realize that you can do whatever the hell you want with this music twist it any way you want it it has yeah. to be like from you but I mean, and there's bands like At the Drive-In, uh, Mars Volta, bands like that that have done similar things with music in different genres that they're respected across the board. Casket Lottery put out an excellent new record in 2020, Short Songs for End Times. Now, as we know, all music was canceled in 2020 because people can't gather, people can't go outside. Yep. So was it a bummer to not get out there and play these songs? And now that things are hopefully going to start picking up again, are you going to be out there doing some touring? Yeah. I mean, as, as soon as we're able to get back out there, once, you know, vaccines kind of get into the population and everything like that, hopefully Furnace Fest is a start because yeah. after we did the Get Up Kids tour and then we did the the dual coast tour to support the re-release of all our original records on vinyl. All that really inspired us to write again. And, you know, by the end of the get up kids tour, we were already talking about writing new music and Nathan was just like, cool, I'll have a bunch of stuff by the time we get home. So we literally got off the get up kids tour. And a few days later, I started getting demo recordings of what would become short songs. Yeah. Like casket lottery, Nathan must be a machine for writing because Casket Lottery always put out material pretty quickly. He, he we were uh, we were prolific early on. You know, when we we first started playing together, it was so natural. Like Nathan would have like the start, like the skeleton of something, and he mm-hmm. would play it in his bedroom, and then it would be on acoustic guitar, and then he would come to practice <clears throat> and show us, and it's like. Yeah, this doesn't sound like it did at all on, the, on my acoustic guitar. And then, <laughs> as you know, Junior Nathan L, or Nathan Richardson and I, like, we were really in tune with one another. So as soon as Nathan would start playing, it was like we didn't even have to think about it early on, and we immediately knew what to do. Like, yeah. we we played really well together, and it's one of the best like musician relationships I've ever had was with Nathan Richardson and, and Nathan Ellis, where like I never had to think about it. And we would go into recordings uh, early on where Nathan just said, well, I just trust you know what you're doing. And then we would get into the studio and he would hear it over studio monitors. And he would tell Ed, it's like, I've never heard that bass line before. Is that what Stacy's been doing the whole time? <laughs> and like, it was funny things like that where we'd get into these situations where he just trusted I knew what I was doing. Nothing sounded wrong. But it wasn't until we got into a studio situation that he knew what I was playing. So it's some pretty funny stories from back in the recording studio of stuff like that. That is a funny story because I've been on the opposite end of that. The, oh yeah. The last the last record I recorded, 
the, our bass player would he would play all this crazy less clay you know uh, you know the annoying <laughs> you know the annoying thing that certain musicians do when like between songs you're trying to talk uh-huh. about shit and one guy's just going off yeah he's back there like, doing the jerry was a race car driver and he thinks yeah. he's totally hilarious so we'd be talking and he'd be back there like and i'm like oh he must know how to play so we get to the studio now i trusted that he knew what he was doing we get to the studio. He doesn't know anything, anything. <laughs> so funny. So we have one day left to record, and I'm like, I'm like telling him, like, just just press the fifth fret on the E string. Now go like here. <laughs> uh, so I'm like standing over him, drilling him. I should have just grabbed the bass and did it myself, but I, I felt bad for the guy, and we got it done. But boy, it was it was weird. Yeah, we, we had we had a couple of of times early on with the casket lottery where our relationship with Ed Rose, who we had been recording with, you know, all those years, like bands would come in to the studio because they loved the way the casket lottery record sound or the get up kids record sound or the kill Creek record sounded. And they would come in thinking that Ed Rose had like magic hands and like (laughs) he would be able to automatically make them sound like any of those bands. Oh my god! Yeah, and there would be times that you know Ed would call us and say, "Well, this band came in on your recommendation." It was like we don't know who those people are, uh, and then he was like, "Well, they're having a little trouble with this thing here." How does that feel to to know that there's people going into a studio and they they want to sound like you specifically? It's strange. It's it's really it's really odd to me. It's uh, it's kind of intimidating i guess a little bit to say why are you wanting to sound like us you know we wanted to you know we wanted not to sound like you know other other bands and stuff like that but it's such a compliment i mean if anyone's going to go on there and and we're the reason they're there that's such a huge compliment and you got to be humbled by that uh i I met a guy named greg railson uh on facebook uh former military guy started playing bass and he sent me a message saying can you send me the tablature to code red? And and I was just like, why don't I just do a video and show you how to play it? And he was like, you'll do a video. And I was like, yeah, dude, I'll send you a video of me playing it and show you, walk you through all the parts, one part at a time. And then a couple of days later, he posted a video on YouTube of him covering code red. So it's been pretty cool. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So, uh, Stacy, you mentioned that you're into classic NES games as well. Uh, NES games. I'm actually into modern games. Uh, I'm I'm the guy that <laughs> I was way into NES. I was way into the Master System. I was into Genesis. I was a Sega guy. Me too. The, yeah, yeah. I, I was. I like, can't play Super Nintendo. Like people tell me to go back and play the the Link, the Legend of Zelda game uh-huh. for Super Nintendo. I can't. It looks it looks like a children's cartoon. <laughs> I don't like the way it looks at all. I can't no, do it. No, uh, Sega was always more mature looking, and their yeah. graphics were always a little darker and more ominous yeah. looking. Yeah, and I think that's what drew me to them because I like horror movies and stuff like that. So yes. all their games always had this like classic horror movie feel to them. So I think that's why I was instantly drawn to, to Sega. So I was going to say with Sega, that was one of the ones that got me to be like, "Oh, I need to buy this." There was a game from for Sega called Splatterhouse. Splatterhouse. And yeah. As soon as I yep. saw it, I was like, "I need that. 
Yep, I, I watched that. I watched a lore video on that about two weeks ago and didn't realize how kind of deep the lore was around that game and how many splatter houses there was. There was so many splatter houses, including like this weird kid game with like this micro Jason looking dude that was jumping around what? killing stuff. Yeah, dude, there's so many things. Go on YouTube and look up like Splatterhouse Retrospective or something like that. And there's so many videos on Splatterhouse on there. Do you do those YouTube deep dives on all different kinds of games as well? I don't even watch TV or movies anymore. That's all I watch. Yeah, the only time I watch TV and movies is with my wife. Yes. Uh, and so like I'll watch like the Great British Baking Show. <laughs> and then now there's this new one from the same people that did that called like the Great Pottery Throwdown. And it's basically <laughs> like people doing clay. But it's like the same concept as the Great British Baking Show. So we watch stuff like that. But we also watch uh, Doom Patrol and, you know, Falcon and Winter Soldier and stuff like that, too. But we watch a lot of like kind of British competition shows, too. Yeah. But mostly I'm on YouTube doing deep dives. Same. What? So what games are you playing now? Right now I'm working on Last of Us 2. Uh-huh. I play a lot, lot, lot of Call of Duty Warzone. Mm-hmm. I haven't played Call of Duty since the first Modern Warfare. See, I'm slowly working through the new Modern Warfare campaign, too, but I'm just addicted to Warzone. I have a squad of guys that I play that with uh, almost every night. Uh, what else? Um, I play, or What are you playing? I'm playing Outriders. I haven't heard of that. You haven't heard of Outriders? Yeah, it just no, came what, out. No, what it's, system? Um, or is it PC? PC, Xbox, PS5. I'm playing it on both PS5 and Xbox right now. Okay. Um, you you can start this multiple classes. Like it's got uh, Pyromancer, but it's like set in the future. Think of like uh, the Division with wizards, and it's kind of like that kind of shooting mechanic with magical abilities. So you have like the Pyromancer, which is obviously you know throws fire. You have the Technomancer, which can bring up turrets and Gatlin guns and stuff like that from the earth. And, and he's basically brings things back to life. And then you have the devastator, which is the tank class. And then the trickster, which is a rogue, which he uses a sword and like energy weapons to you know cause mass murder across the game. It's a looter shooter. It's fantastic. There's a demo out. You can try it. I, I got like 80 hours of the demo. And then I, I bought the game and I'm probably at about 80 hours in the game right now. Yeah, it's it's funny how much time these games take up. Did you play? Are you into Final Fantasy VII at all? Did you play the remake? I played. I never played the original Final Fantasy because I tried and I absolutely hated the battle system. And mm-hmm. then I got Final Fantasy VII. I played it for about three and a half hours, and then I don't remember what came out, but I lost interest. So I got you. Yeah, I, it might be a time and place thing because the original is. It's basically like my Bible. It's, mm-hmm. I think it's the greatest game story ever told. I've played it multiple times. I sometimes just go back and watch the story. Mm-hmm. So playing the new one is like, it's reimagined to a degree. They didn't change too much stuff. So I'm just, I'm looking forward to more from that. It's gorgeous. It looks amazing. And then they have, yes. do you have the PS5 yet? No, no. Um, I, I wait. I like. I wait a long time to until I move on to the next one. I'm. I think I'm playing like nine different games right now between Nintendo, PlayStation Four, and PC. Uh-huh. So uh, I'm always behind, and you know it's going to take me a while to get there. My backlog is backed up like that too. I was two thousand hours on Destiny One. 
and then I went on to Destiny 2, and then I moved on to The Division for a little bit, and then I'm The Last of Us is one of my favorite games of all time. Um, yeah. And I played through The Last of Us 2 four times since it came four out. Four times? Yeah. I love that game. I absolutely love that game. That's like my favorite game of all time. As controversial as that game is with the fans, yeah. like at first playing through it, I kind of hated the direction it took. And mm-hmm. then I kind of, I watched a, uh, a YouTube deep dive of it from a guy named Luke Stevens. And he did a breakdown of, of the second game. And then after I watched his, like, I think it was like a five and a half hour deep dive. I watched it while at work. Uh, I could listen to it like a podcast. And after that, I was like, I had an all new appreciation for that game. And I immediately went home that day when I finished that podcast, started playing it again, and then fell just deeply in love with that that game. Well, yeah, I'm I'm maybe 25% or 30% through it. And something very jarring happens pretty soon into it. Mm-hmm. And I've been I've been dealing with that. Yes. But I, I'm looking forward to more. And yeah. It, oh, did you play Red Dead 2? I played about three hours of it. I've never been a Rockstar uh, fan. I, I don't. I don't like their mechanics. Yeah, like their mechanics are mechanics are like real clunky to me. Like I know the worlds and the stories are like amazing, but yeah. their mechanics are a little clunky for me. So I've never been able to get past that. And I know the controls so many great are stories. insane. Yeah, yeah. It took a long time to get used to. It. And if I stop playing for a month, it's like I have to start all over. Those are the games that I, I get into as well. I never played a Rockstar game except Red Dead 2, but it's in my top three. So do you play Tommy? I play like the old Nintendo games. I never got, I have one of those Raspberry Pi emulators. Oh yeah. Like the Retro Pi. So yeah, yeah. Um, I play, it's my, my twins are seven. So we've been playing a lot of the Super Mario, like the first Super Mario Brothers and the third Super Mario Brothers. They can't get into the second one. I love the second one, but uh, uh, they they still are like confused by the throwing part of it. You know how uh-huh. you have to dig up the vegetables. They <laughs> yeah, still can't the radish, get the radishes and toss them. Yeah. They can't yeah, yeah. get the, 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 like the kind of like timing on that just gets them really frustrated. So they just give up really easily. Um, a game that they play a lot now. And I, I, it was one of those ones that they were just going through. Cause you know, it's, it's divided by retro pie is divided by systems. So they were going mm-hmm, through some mm-hmm. of those old Sega master games and they were like, daddy we want to play a racing game and i was like i used to play this racing game called road rash it was like uh uh-huh. the motorcycle yeah, motor- yeah. And you, combat you, yep yep and yeah you hit people with bats and and lead pipes <laughs> and stuff it's amazing well they were like you know i i was like here guys just find a game to play and they picked road rash three and it is so much fun because like they uh, if you remember that game like it's very hard to like it's almost like if you react too quickly you steer uh-huh. correctly <laughs> like, like, <laughs> and they always look ahead and they're like oh there's a curve coming up and they start steering like i'm like no it's too early and then it's like no it ends up perfect on that game <laughs> like the way that game is kind of set up is like you have to kind of like overreact to every turn um and they did doing really really well with that but um i got them into my favorite series on any of the uh, older games was i loved golden axe uh-huh. yeah. uh, specifically because yeah. yeah. there was uh, an arcade down the shore when i was a kid and they had golden axe uh like the original golden axe on uh-huh. like the arcade version and i spent hours and hours and hours playing that game i loved it so much that when i got 
like golden axe for, uh, well, I had Genesis, but when I got Genesis, I was like, this is all I want to play. Like I, I, my original, like, you know, you, I would play it on the arcade version first, because remember that's like this short and mm-hmm. kind of like, it was only like, I think five levels or maybe six levels. Yeah. I finally got it really good at golden axe three. Uh, but I could only be the like dwarf, uh, Viking guy that carried the battle axe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I couldn't be any other player for some reason. I, I I felt like I was always like at a disadvantage. I was like, let me play with the guy. Let me play with the girl. And I was just like, <laughs> I could have never beat the game with that. Um, but I got really good at Golden Axe three. Um, so I actually played it again. We were down the shore um, over Easter weekend, and I played uh, Golden Axe three, and I I, I beat it. Uh, and I had two le- leftover continues when I was done. I only had to wow. use I only had to use one continue. I was very proud of myself. Well, that's incredible, especially for that era. Oh, yeah. I didn't even know there was a Golden Axe 3 until I saw a gameplay video pop up on YouTube. Oh, yeah. 3 yeah. was my favorite one because it had the best um, in a lot of like, – in, in the first and second one, uh, when you go against the enemies where uh, you know you knock them off whatever they're riding – yeah, uh, you can get on the thing. Yeah, so you could get on the dragon and swing their tail, or some of them breathe fire. Some of them actually have like projectiles that come out of them. It's but every time you would get on one of those, especially in the first game, it uh-huh. made you more susceptible to attack. Like, oh it yeah, was, because it, I mean, you're riding on the back of another creature, so you're just getting clubbed from all directions and can't defend yourself. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> I, I, I had to teach the girls like when we were playing it. I was like, don't get on that. They're like, but I just got the guy off of that i'm like wait for him to get back on it and then chop him again <laughs> like you know <laughs> um but yeah no i really just stick to uh nintendo and and the, the old sega master system that's really my my wheelhouse i it keith i'm with you on this though i can't play any of the super nintendo games i the only one i will play is super mario world i want to play that eventually but you know guys what i want to get into but I'm just afraid to open it because it'll just be another like Pandora's box of video games. <laughs> What's that? Arcade emulation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Get an NVIDIA shield for that. Yeah. I just, I can't, I play too many games that is as it is right now. I can't yeah. like, I can't cycle in a whole nother system or I'm going to be in big trouble. Yeah. I'm very nostalgic for the old school gaming, but I'm yeah. very much a person that wants to be on the technology front. They want the, the newest and most modern and the fastest and all that stuff. But I have yeah. a great nostalgia for it. I had a friend that used to have a collection that uh, he, he was in his divorce. He had to sell his entire collection, oh. which was like four rooms worth of stuff, including an original Xbox demo unit, a Dreamcast demo unit with the original CRT screen, as well as two controllers attached to it. Oh, he had no. the original like Atari keyboard uh, console oh. as well. And like he just had all the stuff that he had been collecting since he was like 20 years old. Oh, and then he had to sell it in the divorce. My heart is like breaking yes. right now. Yes. And it broke his heart too. And he like, he's never yeah. looked back. He like, he was one of my, f- the favorite people I ever had to talk video games with and kind of connect with. And then once he had to sell that collection, a little bit, a little part of him just died and he lost interest once he did that. See, that's a good uh, that's a good reason. Just never get married. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, my wife knows that none of my video games are worth anything, so I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. 
I, I worked in a in a law firm uh, that specialized in uh, divorce and custody, and I remember uh, we had a couple clients that were like serious collectors. Uh, uh-huh. One guy was a, a comic book collector, and I remember when we sat down. They do uh, the, one of the processes in a divorce is the discovery, where you basically disclose all of the assets you have. And mm-hmm. I remember we were like, oh, you guys have a house. They had a, you know, a shared lease on a car. Um, they had a rental property. And then there was this like packet. And I was like, what the hell is this? It was like 30 pages long, double-sided. And I'm like, what is this? And they're like, <laughs> it was the listing of all his comic books and their current oh worth. And I was like, <laughs> oh, no, this poor guy. And all I can think of is like with your friend, like I remember the, the guy we were representing had the comic books. And, um, when we were done, I was like, uh, he kind of came out on the upside. He had a, a good amount of money to, you know, kind of start over. But I was like, Hey, are you gonna, uh, like, you know, do you ever think about like, just, you know, collecting something else? Like, or are you going to go back into collecting comic books? And I remember he looked at me and was like, I will never collect another comic book ever. And I was oh, like, that's heartbreaking. I was like, why not, man? Like, well, that's, you, this is something you, I, and he's like, imagine you built an entire house out of like Legos. I was like, yeah. And he's like, and it got knocked down and someone said, yeah, just go ahead and start again and rebuild it. He's (laughs) like, I I've spent my life. Yep. Trading, searching, going to swap meets, garage sales, you name it. He's like, I, 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 every single one of those comic books told a story and not just the story within the pages. And I was like, yeah, oh, yeah. no, man, I'm so sorry. And he's like, no, it's all right. I, uh, you know, I've always been kind of interested in like, uh, I forget what he said, something like baseball cards or something like that. And I was like, yeah, man, oh start, with, start with that. Start over with something yeah. fresh, man. Like, <laughs> and, and, and then the baseball players strike the next year. And, and then baseball. Is- <laughs> 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 no, I, I was the same way. I, I collected comic books too. And I had about 4,000 comics by the time I was done. I actually met Mike Mignola, the creator of Hellboy. And I actually had him draw me a Hellboy. And I got a tattooed on my arm right after the Whoa. convention. So like, and I sold all my comic books to a local uh, store that I've been going to for years. And I got like, four grand out of my comic book collection, which considering I had 4,000 comic books, I basically got paid a dollar a comic book. But I was just like, at least I have four grand now. And that's pretty much my, my, my thought to the whole thing is like, I can either have these books that are sitting around collecting dust or I can have four grand. So I voted for the four grand even after eight years of collecting. Well, we're out of time gents, but I just want to say, Stacy, thanks so much for coming on the show. You know, you you've been a you've created so much music that we absolutely love, and I'm just so happy that I have this platform and that Tommy and I get to talk to artists like you. Because I mean, we probably never would have otherwise. I appreciate it, man. I really, I'm really glad you guys. uh, When I reached out to you, you guys got back to me pretty quick, and we were able to set this up. I listened to some of your podcasts and I really dug what you guys did. And after Nathan Ellis, I was just like, I think I want to talk to these guys. These guys are pretty rad. I don't want to like, you know, sit down and gush over this, but uh, please just know that you've created music that has shaped the lives of a lot of people. And it's coalesce represented for me kind of if Dillinger was kind of like this powerhouse kind of like super tech over the top thing. Coalesce became this like very 
heartfelt, something I could really relate with and something that had that same energy as Dillinger and something that had that same kind of intensity, but also really kind of brought me like the lyrics always had something that were meaningful, something that I, I walked away with and felt like that really impacted my life in a, in a positive way. Whereas a lot of other music made me feel like, yeah, I'm angry. And it's like, yeah, but coalesce had something that a lot of other bands couldn't touch, which was, there was artistry in it. There was a real kind of almost poetry to the lyrics. And I always remember hearing, um, like the way the, the guitar was played. And I went, I've never heard guitar played like that because it, it, it seemed so chaotic and so almost mm-hmm. like sloppy at times. But then when you really sit down and listen to it, you're like, well, there's some real technicality in this. Um, I think one of the things that I remember, I sat down with my guitar one day and I had it, I thought I had it in drop D and I was mm-hmm. like, I have it in E and I, I, you know, did a regular bar chord and I was like, oh, wait, it kind of sounds like coalesce a little bit. <laughs> like, there's like this, it's like a power chord, but there's dissonance in it. Like this is, this is, this is great. Like this is something that I could attach myself to that, that meant something. And, and again, that's one of those reasons I still have not gotten rid of my coalesce shirt. That is, that is something I'll be buried with it. I think <laughs> that's incredible. I'll, I'll tell both Jess and Sean next time I see him. Uh, I agree with you. Sean's lyrics. Super great, man. I, I love that guy's lyrics. They always touch me as well. So, but I appreciate everything you guys have said that that means a lot to me. There you have it, folks. Stacy Hilt. That was incredible. There were so many good stories in there. Coalesce stories from back in the day. We got the real story about the infamous girl getting hit by a drum thing. Because whenever you read that story, it's like Coalesce threw a drum at a girl and she got really hurt. But Stacy told the story and the drum was crowd surfed back and a guy threw it at the girl at the merch table. And now I'm not minimizing it. I'm I'm like, I'm not saying she didn't get hurt. I don't know. I'm sure she did. And it sounded like it was a big deal, but the story was different from what you usually hear. Well, I think it's one of those situations of like whisper down the lane where it's like, oh yeah, yeah this happened. And then this happened. And then everybody puts their own little spin on it. And uh, by the time it gets to, you know, the internet, it's like way blown out of proportion. Yeah. And he was a really nice guy. He's into gaming, which, you know, I love. And it was just a lot of great stories. It was awesome. That was really good. I actually, I like hearing about people that are into modern gaming. Yes. And when they have the technical knowledge of like, oh, actually, I don't like, what did he, what's the word he used? The mechanics of the game. I'm like, yeah. Oh, I always think that's a funny thing. Like when I play a game, I don't think of how the game plays. Do you know what I mean? Like I just play the game. Like, I don't think about that at all. I want to get into PC gaming, like those glowing computers that you see dudes have. Oh, yeah. And they have like a room that's pink and blue and the the computer glows. And I want to get into all that stuff. I just don't know when or how. I always see, uh, I, I, I must have looked for uh, a PC thing one time on Instagram. So I consistently get ads for um, Alienware. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> that's one of those uh, that seems to be like that those LED things are like pre-built into their PCs and and keyboards and all their accessories that go along with it are like LED ready. Like there's no like modifications that need to be done. Like if you want to look like that, you can immediately do it with their stuff. So yeah, I want that stuff. Stacy mentioned the NVIDIA card. I want to know what the cards are, and I want to install one, and I, I want to do all that stuff. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I, I just don't have time, man. I The way work is going and everything, I, I just don't have time for anything anymore. I don't have time for this podcast. This is the last episode. This is it. Well, it was a good run. Yeah. We had some I, great times. No, I'm just kidding. And on the on a on a funny note, I found out in today's I've known Keith for twenty plus years at this point. I didn't know that you've seen corn live. Yeah, man, I forgot. It was like a lifetime ago. And I was I remember they did like a medley of songs. Like they, they didn't play the whole song. They did like a medley of old songs. What album was that in like during? Do you know? It was during Follow the leader, the, the really big one. Follow the leader, yeah, yeah. I remember uh, Jonathan Davis came out on stage during orgy set, and people just went wild. And he, he like he sang a song with them. I remember standing up and yelling the lyrics to uh, Adidas. Oh yeah, I wore an Adidas T-shirt to the show. Oh man, well you were like all in. Yeah. See, I never got in. I I. I liked corn cause I really liked their sound, mm-hmm. but not to be like too punny about it. I immediately thought they were corny. Like I was like, yeah, <laughs> I don't want to be like that. Like the kids that were into that were, I, so I went to like an all, like a Catholic grade school. And I, I remember like the kids that were like super into like Manson and corn and that kind of stuff. It's, it always, kind of came across as like i'm doing this for shock value rather than like i'm actually into the music that's what that's why i liked it i wanted to that's i used to do a lot of things because i wanted attention and i think that's why it didn't stick is because i just wanted to be different i wanted to be noticed i wanted to be special all that kind of bullshit like the i'm going to go to the party and put on converge even though there's people here trying to dance yeah i was that, that kinda, guy too yeah i know you were <laughs> oh people hate me yeah i feel bad but it's kind of funny in retrospect because i i read that john belushi did the same thing at universal studios like he he, he was actually was fear your boy oh he, yeah he went office to office blasting fear and he was like you got to put this in the movie and he was making phone calls all night like harassing people trying to get them to put fear in the movie neighbors and then once I read that story about him, it made me feel better about how I used to torture people at parties who wanted to listen to Sublime, and I was putting on Converge. Yeah, I actually talked. I talked to Lee uh, right before Easter. How's he doing? Uh, he's doing all right. I mean, I actually I, so let me rephrase that. I didn't actually talk to him. We were texting back and forth uh, because when he was like available to actually, because keep in mind he's like West Coast. Yeah. Um, when he was able to talk, it, it was basically like it, we were putting the girls down to bed and I was like, eh, I can't really talk then. And then after that, like I'm going to bed because they're not in their house. So they're going to be up at six 30. <laughs> like, this is going to be an early morning. There's no way I'm going to get on the, and he's not an easy, 
he's not a, a, a five minute, Hey, check in and talk kind of person. He wants to, he wants to sit down and have a conversation. So I felt like I would be not doing him justice. If I he was just like, Hey, I want to say hi. Like, he'd be like, great. I wanted to tell you old stories. <laughs> yeah. There are certain people I know when I talk to them, I'm in it for the long haul. So I have to set aside time to do that. Oh yeah. Yeah. One of, I, one of their names is T. <laughs> oh wait, no, I can't put that in the show. I'll no, that's it. no, no, that's too obvious. Tommy, Tom, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, we have uh, some new reviews. You want to hear them? Yes. All right. So here we go. First review from Cinnamon Twists. I like it. Five stars. This podcast is about beating drug addiction and original Nintendo games, accompanied by teaching math and frugal security. <laughs> hilarious I get, that's what they've isolated about me is i teach and i'm extraordinarily cheap good yes. you're listening you're paying attention then yeah that's what i love <laughs> they we have identifiable personality traits sometimes they talk about music <laughs> <laughs> occasionally and interview dudes from iconic bands that fix dents in cars now for a living oh, all in yeah. all a quality program that was great i love that we have identifiable things. That means that people are listening and they're following our trajectory. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Cinnamon Twists, for the review. I always appreciate that kind of stuff when, especially when people are like, I, I always like the comments when people are like, yeah, these two have chemistry. Because that was always like my biggest fear is like, you and I can sit down and shoot the shit, like, you know, just sitting there talking and stuff. But does that translate to someone listening, you know, somebody investing two hours of their time to like, listen to us talk. And I'm like, Oh my God, do we, do we do this correctly? (laughs) I think so. Because a lot of people, even people we don't know say that we have chemistry like this next review, which I'm going to read in a second. But when we started this thing, I, I felt like I knew how to do it. I didn't know exactly how, but I knew what we needed to do to make it good. And I felt like we could have, banter that would be interesting enough to do it and but that's just me like when i put out my last record i was like this is going to be the greatest thing ever and everyone's going to love it and i'm going to be a sensation but that was not the case but the difference is we're still doing the podcast it's work you just keep going and going and going and going and then other people pick up on it you know so uh basically what i'm trying to say is people seem to like it I'm, i'm happy about that yeah period yeah, I'm excited. I I always think about the the recent thing that's come to my mind is uh the analogy you made about like we're in a band and this is us playing VFW halls. Yeah, and if it, we're always going to be playing VFW halls, I'm psyched on that too. Me too, because if you look at how many people listen per episode, if that's people showing up to your show every time, I'm fucking happy. Oh my god, yeah. Yeah. All right, so next review from Tyson P88. This has become a podcast staple for me. Five stars. Love listening to these podcasts. When they have guests on, they are great at asking questions without making it a Q&A. Amazing format for discussion. Their chemistry is so great, Tommy. Their chemistry is so great oh, that they don't even have to have guests on, and I still listen. I'm happy to hear that because I get self-conscious about the no guest episodes. So much fun learning about bands in that area and everyone else they bring on. This has been a staple podcast for a year for me and makes washing the dishes, doing house stuff, 
work and long drives way more enjoyable. And those are the times that you listen to a podcast. Those are, t- those are the times that I listen to podcasts. So uh, thank you so much, Tyson, for the very nice review. That's awesome. And folks, send us more reviews. They help us out in the world of podcasting. If you like the podcast, give us five stars. Write a little review. Write a long review. We'll read it on the show. I just like the fact that they mentioned we have chemistry. Because again, like I said, that was like their, that was our my biggest fear was like, you know, are, are, is this going to come across as something somebody would want to pay attention to for any amount of time? And yes, I, I always get nervous, and, and like you said, I, I'm self conscious of those as well. Like the episodes where we don't have guests, yeah. Because going into it, my thing is like, what the fuck are we going to talk about? And <laughs> I, I always my one of my fears is I'm going to run out of things to talk about. So I'm going to start talking about things that I don't necessarily want to be talking about on the podcast. Like, I don't know my marriage or like, like that no, I would, stuff. I would just napalm death. You, we haven't heard it in a while. Let's throw one in. There we go. It's still <laughs> there folks. I'm ready. If Tommy goes on too long now, do you want to know a secret Tommy? Yeah. I always have an agenda for what? For this? Oh, for the you, like for the you and I episodes. For the show. Okay. Yeah. So I've always got a plan. I'm glad to know that. You didn't know I, that, did you? I, no. Well, I don't have a plan. See, folks, there are things even Tommy does not know. Oh, there's a, what I don't know who could fill a warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we're out of time. That's it. But I think this was a great episode. How about you? I dug this one and especially because you know what's one of the the things about uh, just interviewing bands is that we don't sit down and just be like hey remember that album that was really good like what did that look like just telling stories from tour and uh I I think the most poignant moment for me was like when he was telling that story about uh the incident that happened in Wilkes-Barre where he was just like yeah I just packed up my shit and I knew I'm done like, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. And I've only done that a couple times in my life. But the fact that he made that decision in front of all those people while on stage just kind of speaks to the person he is where he's just like, nope, I'm deciding this now and I'm sticking by it. Fuck you. I, I don't remember the exact moment, but I remember being at a show uh, at the kill time and a, a bunch of really bad stuff went down. And I remember getting in my car that night and being like, I think that might've been my last one. I think that was it. Like, yeah. Cause it was just, it was ultra violent. It was it, every, it just left a bad taste in my mouth the whole ride home. And I remember like kind of coming in the house and being like, yeah, I think that might've been my last West Philly show for a while. Like, I don't, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. Like the, the novelty of like, living on the edge of like, Oh, this is like dangerous and crazy and something might happen. It's like, yeah, this is just, it's, it's not fun anymore. I'm done. Yeah. I, I don't think I was capable enough of independent thought at the time to, to make decisions like that. I just kind of did what my friends did, but you know, people fell off like this day forward, finished circus survive started. People were cycling away from hardcore and I did too. I didn't really ever stop listening to it, but I didn't go to many shows. And I, one of the first shows I went to in a while was All Else Failed at Philafunk in 2006. 
And I was like, cool, it's been a couple of years. Like it probably won't be as crazy. And I went and it was, it was the same shit. There was guys crowd killing. And if you even touch them, you would get beaten up. The Luke, the singer's brother got into a thing with somebody. And I was like, why did it, why did I even bother trying to go? Like I, I'm, I'm done. And I don't know. That was, I guess that was another last one for a while. Yeah. I, I think that um, I was thinking about something that Miggs said one time and he was just like, you know, as we get older, we look back on that time and go like it it was it was for the time. Yeah. We look back on it and say, I would never, ever in a million years act like that now. I'm an adult like this is not the way I would behave. But at the same time. Uh, you know, as a teenager and and somebody in their early twenties, you you do lock into that because it's like you mentioned before. There's there's that element of like this is dangerous and this is cool and I want to be like not like everybody else. And then there's a part when you're in the midst of it and you're like, this isn't what I expected. I, right. I think I got more than I bargained for, and I and I kind of not kind of I I I, I regret this. I don't want to end on a, on a, on a real sad note like that, but I, I think it's also, it's telling of, um, just growth. And I yeah. think that, that maturity that comes along with growing up and, you know, the responsibilities that, that kind of embody what we've become is it is an important thing to kind of reiterate, like, you know, you are not the actions you can, you know, had 20 years ago you can look back on that and reflect and go like, okay, well that was a poor decision. And I know, I know better now. So I do better. So there you go. Yeah. What more is there to say? I'm with you. Listen, folks, we're out of time. This is it. We hope you enjoyed the episode and strap in because we've got a couple banger guests coming up. If everything holds, you know who I'm talking about, Tommy. My mom's coming on. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to find out what the fuck happened to this guy. I know I would never allow my mother to be on this show. <laughs> Actually, I didn't even think of that. And now you put the idea in my head and I think it might have to happen. She, I need to be sitting next to her. I yeah. cause I, I need to be able to like write on a, a notepad and be like, don't say this. Oh Just- no, we're going to, we're going to get to the bottom <laughs> of what happened to you. <laughs> we're out of time. That's it. We'll see you next week. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and until next time. Yeah!